Welcome back to the Film 89 Podcast. This is episode 104. I'm Sky, and joining me tonight are three guests, one of whom was on episode 15 of this podcast exactly five years ago. That man is Gary Smart, producer of the new, now completed documentary, RoboDoc. And along with him are RoboDoc's director, Christopher Griffiths, and co-director and editor, Eastwood Allen. Gentlemen, welcome to Film 89. Love a good intro. Yeah. Yeah, uh, thanks for agreeing to have us back after five years. Obviously, we didn't bore you that much five years ago, so thank you. Well, I, I kind of got a vested interest in all of this because it is, after yeah. all, a, you know, a documentary about, uh, as, as listeners of the podcast will know, my favourite film. So, Gary, it, it is hard to believe, isn't it, that it was five years ago that you and I spoke about the then-in-production Robodoc, and now... Yeah. You know, it's here at last, and you and the guys can, you know, I guess, breathe a collective sigh of relief. But for those listeners who, shame on them, might not have listened to the previous episode, tell them about who you guys are and about your previous works and what RoboDoc is and how it came to be. Okay, so uh, our company is called Screenings UK Limited. Also, uh, part of that is Dead Man's Productions. So, uh, our first kind of uh, project back in 2000, God, when was it, Chris? 13? 2013 was um, Levi from the story of Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 Hellbound, got that wrong, but anyway, uh, long title. Uh, and that was obviously covering the first two Hellraiser films, a little bit about the third film in, in terms of special features. Straight after that, we started we decided to go and do a documentary on Fright Night, which is a, a favourite film of mine from back in the day. I know Chris loved it as well. Uh, we kind of, after we did the interviews on that, we kind of got involved with Eastwood there. I can't remember really how, to be honest. I think he'd seen something we'd posted. And obviously Eastwood offered to come on board regards to editing and doing a trailer for us and the motion graphics. So I remember going to meet Eastwood up in uh, Chef, Sheffield. What wasn't it? Sheffield Celluloid Screams, I think it was. To hand in this big hard drive, obviously, with all the footage, not knowing who he was, really. He could, he could have nicked it and disappeared forever. But we've been stuck with him for the last eight years. So Eastwood obviously was involved in that. We released it, and that did quite well. And then we was kind of a minar about what to do next. And then we decided to do Robocop. Again, I'll let Chris and Eastwood talk about the kind of birth of that, because it's, it's probably their, their story more than mine. And then since then, we've done obviously documentaries on Pennywise's story of it. And we've done uh, Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares. Robert England story. So uh, the last kind of three or four projects have been, as we call them, it sounds really weird, but legitimate projects. You know, the, the others were independent, did really well, and ended up being licensed across the world. I think Leviathan ended up being licensed on Harry's releases in the UK, the US, Italy, France, Germany. I mean, it went everywhere that did. Uh, I think even China, we had a release over there as well as a bonus feature. And then uh, you'll recall Bruce's story of Fright Night. Uh, that ended up being on. Uh, a Eureka release, and, and then we had an email from Sony Pictures. I remember the, the head of the email being front of documentary, and I shat myself thinking we're going to be sued. And they asked, could they have it on their new edition steelbook? So that legitimized it for us then. And also, it was licensed to Shudder, now it's on Screenbox. But again, these are our kind of our newest projects. And the reason why it's taken longer is because we've kind of gone legit now in terms of. You know, we're dealing with sales agents. We're dealing with, obviously, uh, post-production producers, sound houses, uh, QC, legals, which has been a minefield, which we never dealt with before, uh, and also in streaming services. And obviously, we've kind of joined the Screenbox family, uh, and that's where we find ourselves now. Uh, but again, you know, going backwards to RoboDoc, I think it's probably best for lads to talk about that because it is their baby as opposed to mine. Um, so I don't know who wants to start, maybe Chris, in terms of, how it was how it, how it was started and how then eastwood uh, was involved 
It's all our babies, Gary. Don't worry, okay? You're just as much part the illegitimate father of Robodoc. I mean, yeah, as Gary was saying, Gary's got a habit of, like, recruiting young, handsome men, a bit like Liberace did in that uh, behind the <laughs> And uh, I was one of those unfortunate things. But I've kind of aged horrifically. <laughs> um, I think all of us have. But, um, yeah, it was during the course of uh, production on Fright Night, which was my first opportunity to essentially lead on a project or do the directing part. Um, yeah, so Gary's still a leader. Um, <laughs> and while we were out shooting that in Los Angeles, uh, I had Ed Newmeyer, the writer of Robocop, on my Facebook. And I'd obviously just added him like, oh, my God, you know, suggested friends, the writer of Robocop. Absolutely. I'm sure I'll say nothing to him someday. It was just whilst out there, I'd noticed his Facebook posts. You know, he had met uh, or had obliged to meet, like, you know, fans. So I thought, ooh, <laughs> I mean, I'm in, on his turf, so it'd be great to meet him. I thought it was a bit stupid, to be honest. So I kind of wanted to leave it. But Gary pushed me, as he ever does. Um, he was like, no, go on, message him. What's it going to hurt? So I messaged him, a bit wide-eyed like a fanboy. But the tone of the, the message, I always say, was a bit more like, a, a, hey, Ed, we're in town uh, making a documentary on Friday night. It'd be great to hook up with you, trying to sound somewhat professional. And then it was a couple of days went by, and he actually obliged. He said, yeah, sure, let's meet. Let's go for a meal in Burbank. So we did that. And then we actually found out during the course of that meal, uh, his partner at the time was uh, director Tom Holland's assistant on Fright Night. So I think he thought that we were looking to hook up with him because we had found that out and, you know, might have wanted some, you know, inside information or something like that. However, we were just purely meeting because we're big fans of Robocop. Um, and then we had the meal with him, uh, which he was very kind and paid for. And then just towards the end of the meal, he said, um, oh, you, you boys should look at doing a Robocop documentary. And that was just like an instant, like, oh, right, we've got access. It's happening. We're doing it. I don't think he expected quite as much that we'd be emailing him virtually, like, on the flight home. <laughs> and, and then that was it. Like, the, the project was up and running. Um, as Gary had said, Eastwood had come on board with Fright Night. I think it was just an absolute <laughs> no-brainer because Eastwood as well is a massive, massive fan of Robocop. So it was probably like the first person for anyone. I was like, Eastwood, guess what? You know, we've just been out for a meal with the writer of Robocop. And then that's really where Eastwood's story comes in. Yeah. And so I was well jealous at these guys because I remember seeing it on your Insta, Chris. And this was just, I think it was just before I'd met you. Or I saw a picture anyway. And I was like, you've met Ed Neumeyer. Um, and then I was literally like, I'll do whatever you want, Gary. Whatever you want. I'll do. I'd love to obviously do the post. And so, yeah, I was brought on as initially creative producer and editor. And then as the project grew and grew, which I know we'll get into, I, I um, jumped as co-director co with Chris because it became bloody massive. But uh, yeah, and then we raised the Kickstarter, didn't we? I think we raised 34 grand via a Kickstarter, which I put together a trailer and then headed over to Burbank to set up a shop where we interviewed. Initially, it was going to be 16 people and then people just came out of the woodwork and literally, you know, Gary was tweeting Ray Wise and Ray Wise popped around within like 15, 20 minutes and it was all a bit surreal. That production that, that production office was just bonkers. Do you remember they were, they were shooting Warcraft at the same time? So they had yeah. a load of like prosthetics. And then I remember one, this is going off, off tangent, so you can cut this out if you want, Sky. But I remember um, once coming out of the production office and there was just this weathered old like Mick Jagger looking bloke. I don't know if you guys remember this. And they were saying, oh, I heard you did a Robocop documentary. Do you want a Robocop yeah, suit? I remember, yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, who the hell is this guy? And he was going, oh, I've got the original Batman, um, Keaton Batman. I've got the Val Kilmer suit. I've got Jack Nicholson's Bat uh, Joker suit. I've got the original Raptor from Jurassic Park. And I'm going, this guy's just trying to impress me, but he's working. And then I'd, I'd never asked him who he was. And then he left. And then the guy who ran the studio, I knew you were pals with, 
uh, Gary. I said, who was who that guy who was just in? And he was like, oh, he's the guy that co-created Hannah Montana. He's worth half a billion dollars. And all he does now is collect like film merch. And then like two days later, he brought the uh, the original. I think it was the it was either Robocop or Robocop 2 stunt suit, wasn't it? But it was all repainted because it had been scratched to shit. And we've got behind the scenes footage of that, which will be on the Blu-ray. But yeah, that production office and, and those shoots were so much fun. So we, we did a stint in Burbank, then headed over to Berkeley um, to, Phil, to Phil Tippett's place. And then hopped over to Dallas, which was awesome because it was, as you said, Chris, it was like Robocop land running around, just picking out skylines and going, we're in Robocop land. And then the the, the final stint was in, um, or the final initial stint, because you guys did Munich, didn't you, a, a year or two later, was in New York, where we also interviewed quite a few um, sequel cast, cast and crew members in one of the most stinkiest hotel rooms I've ever. It was like that one out of fourteen oh eight with John Cusack. <laughs> I just watched that as well. Fourteen oh eight is a luxury by comparison. Yeah, just laughing in it to myself. I always remember that picture of Chris and when he saw the suit for the first time and because it was battered to fuck wasn't it I just, we, got a, we, got, we got a photograph of chris and he looks like a, a kid at christmas who's got the wrong present his face is just like he's trying to be happy in front of this guy he was a billionaire and literally he was like this suit is shit <laughs> it was like it was spray paint with like paint from like fucking asda it wasn't it was like all the wrong colors and but, using like black electric tape as yeah, the tune guard was just a gimmick. It was like a jawless Robocop. <laughs> yeah, you've worked your magic on it, Eastwood, I think, with your creativeness to make it look good and, and obviously the bonus. It's but not I, actually in the documentary we I used in the suits. So, yeah, that. that was the thing, Gary. Do you not remember having like an argument with this guy? I hope he never listens to this. But you had an <laughs> argument with the guy because he was kicking <laughs> off saying, I've got, he literally had like this henchman come with the suit. <laughs> sure, yeah. And we never used it because we said, this is, it's, it looks like it's a bad cosplay, even yeah. though it was a stunt suit that was just constantly painted over for like 10 15 years or even longer and so we never used it because it just looked shit on camera it looked it looked really like it looked like the ken do you remember the kenner one that i had when i was like three yeah, it was yeah plastic it looked like that so um we didn't end up shooting it but we did get some behind the scenes stuff uh, with it against the green screen but yeah it was a, it was a mad shoot sky like we had so much fun considering and, um, as well like i think i've got more of a tan from this weekend than i did over there because we were just stuck in i remember coming out of the studio yeah like it'd be like seven at night wouldn't it and we were knackered and we all came back apart from when we to, i think when we got to dallas we were all like still milk bottle white weren't we <laughs> i think we had one or two days off in dallas i think it was we had one day sitting by the pool wasn't it and we all got a tan that one set yeah crying out there was. I think going on what like eastwood had said before though like you know it's hard to really kind of emphasize just how this project grew and grew there was always intent to sort of do you know a deep dive on it and we're more than aware that you know there'd been the uh criterion edition of the film the 2002 trilogy box set sure my real nerdiness here i remember that very day getting my copy and then like the anniversary edition they did in um the us some years later you know where they kind of gradually added some more bonus features so we knew that we wanted to go above and beyond all that sort of stuff but we like i used to say we started off with 16 people confirmed uh for the documentary and it just kind of from there spiraled out of control thanks to gary and our other producer mikey kind of acquiring and getting in contact with people but on top of that the amount of people who still knew other people and would actually on our behalf call them and say oh guess what i'm just down here now i think it was um and i'm sounding really ignorant now but certainly michael gregory the swat team member i can't remember what order it was but he's friends with the guy who plays ron miller the mayor yeah vice 
or so or something, wasn't it? And so it just kind of spiraled. And then, as I said, came back with 65 interviews. So already there, you're like, shit, this is this is a bit big, you know. <laughs> How'd you put 65 interviews into our originally planned, you know, 90 minute, two hour documentary? In fact, then that kind of leads on to my first question: that when you first initiated the Kickstarter campaign and you had a vision as to what this was going to be before things kind of blew out of proportion in terms of the money you made and then the sort of you know domino effect of you making contacts which led to other people what was your just initial vision for the project before you even got dime one kind of sent to you you know was was there always an intention to cover the sequels or was it all, was it just going to initially going to be about our first film i think eastwood says in the oh i do isn't it? i think you no know, eastwood does in that original kickstarter video like almost like a footnote we'd also like to cover the sequels you know i think to be honest i mean the original intention as far as it being very uncreative Actually, it's one thing I'm really glad we never went through with now. But with Fright Night, that was leaps and bounds beyond Leviathan. So that for us, there was that sense of progression. The production value had gone right through the roof, you know, with Eastwood's animations and editing and the music as well really helped in that one. But obviously, I thought it worked for Fright Night, I think. You know, we did these like segues with Peter Vincent or the actor Simon Bamford playing playing Peter Vincent. Jesus, there's so many layers to that. Roddy McDowell, who is Peter Vincent. I think I remember originally thinking like we kind of just sort of almost do a cookie cutter approach of, all right, let's take that approach we did with Fright Night, which was pretty deep and did cover the second film, to be fair, a good portion. And I don't know, maybe we could do some things like our own media breaks, you know, and I'm sure we were talking about some other Hellraiser cast members. We're big speed. We're going to have Nick Vince. who I even mocked up an image of him, do you remember? Uh, He wouldn't shave his goatee off. (laughs) It was like, he's not doing it. I'm so glad we didn't do that. Like I, yeah. I think we got away with it uh, just about. Well, no, we definitely did with Simon Bamford because he did a great job, and you know it was a bit of a quirky approach, you know, to helping us with the yeah. narrative structure and just kind of increase the scope of it by having like, holy shit, you guys actually shot some content beyond just talking heads, and that's definitely what was thinking in my head that it would be somewhere in the region of maybe two hours on the first film and then maybe an hour on the sequels. But I think there was just a, there was numerous kind of situations that led us to kind of going down the sequel route. Again, people who were in the first film, not a great deal, who carried over into the second one. And it was kind of, I think, when we were struggling to get Peter Weller, we felt a bit resilient, like, well, we're just going to get ourselves uh, Robert Burke and, oh, look, there's Richard Eden, we'll get him as well. So we've got two Robocops, just not the original. And then that's just kind of where that grew. It's like, oh, well, there's, there's uh, Gabriel Damon who played Hob. Let's get him. And that's, again, just grew and grew and grew. So we kind of just opened a Pandora's box, I think. Yeah, I think I, I it's made sense to you last week. I'm not sure if I did or not. I was going through some old files, and I found the original uh, pitch we did, Red. And the original documentary was called, I'd Buy That for a Dollar, The Story of Robocop. And it was a traditional doc, as in, like, you know, pre-production, production, post-production. And I think it was, then it was legacy. I think it was so straightforward, wasn't it? I mean, Eastern's nodding because he, probably, he would definitely have seen that that pitch document it was a traditional 90 minute two hour documentary uh with a, with a shitty title because obviously we'd use quotes from films for obviously brewster so we tried to do it again and it was called i buy that for a dollar and then i don't know how robocop even, robocop even came about but yeah it was kind of strange how it kind of evolved but i think as eastwood would testify now it just evolved evolved probably for the edit more as well didn't it you know in that yeah for sure i think we always had the idea i know chris and i talked about doing it with green screen because we just didn't like the idea of we again being massive robocop fans we wanted it to feel cohesive and feel 
of that world when you're watching it. So it's not like the interviewees and then it cuts to the movie. And obviously, look, being sci-fi and it's got it's a bit, it's got a very very distinctive look, hasn't it, RoboCop? So we said green screen, which obviously caused a load of headaches later on. All, all rendering off this machine that I'm sat by now for like yeah years but we did yeah we knew we wanted to do it green screen I think we talked as well Chris which we didn't end up doing but we were going to have everybody looking down the lens at one point and introducing themselves and having all of the you know data com uh, uh, graphics the, the was it the bios graphics introducing each person and I think when we saw the how small the green screen was and sort of the angles that we could get within that Burbank Bank studio and sort of yeah, certain people were uncomfortable looking on lens. I think we just sort of scrapped that and said, give us, you it's know, like we'll, we'll get what we can. I definitely remember thinking about wanted that film four approach that they yeah. do with those little vignettes of one director camera and then a full on side shot. And then I think the way our DP kind of set it up was a bit like, okay, traditional shoot. We didn't shoot. have green screen, did we, to do the yeah, side shot? Was, was yeah, we were very um, gorilla. But I don't. I yeah. definitely don't miss that now. We've, we tried to be fun and spicy with sort of the intros for people, and and some of the, the the comments that we've had recently have been like how people have enjoyed how we introduced Peter Weller and how we've now introduced the Bodica Gang and how we introduced Nancy with certain shots from her previous films. And we tried to be fun with that and do something just as fun in different ways. But originally, I know I remember Chris and I having a chat about doing some sort of graphic intro for, which I think thinking about it, Chris, it would have definitely worked for like the cops and for Murphy and obviously like Anne Lewis, but for the bad, for the bad guys, it would have been weird having the Robocop graphics, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. Pop up. Maybe we'd have done something different for that. Yeah. And then like Gary said, we ended up just getting, we ended up getting uh, Tom Noonan and, and, and obviously like Gabriel uh, Damon who, who, played hobby we've never done an interview before and then that got our gears working where chris and i were just going right we need to get everybody let's get everybody <laughs> and we literally the only person i think that turned us down so again rob rob um, botine we couldn't we tried our hardest to get and we had ed night ed newmeyer literally call him in front of us and put us on speakerphone and he didn't say a word even when ed called him rob botine i feel like we could hear his breaths but he's just a bit of an enigma which added to the whole mystique thing. Um, and then I think the only person that turned us down, Gary, wasn't it? Apart from obviously Weller saying he didn't want to do it for years, was the guy that played Hophead. Yeah, yeah, you got to know. We, yeah. we wanted him for the convenience store. And then fortunately, because we were plugging holes throughout the different, you know, as the years went on, where we'd go and go, right, we need someone to fill that scene if we're going to do this scene by scene thing. Chris and Gary were working on an It documentary. And um, Adam Frazel, who who's one of the main kids in It, is actually a kid in Robocop 2, but he also at one point was going to be in Robocop, the first one. So yeah, we'll let people watch the documentary and see what we've done in that scene, but every scene's sort of comprehensive, um, whether we, we tackle it with animations, whether we just tackle the deleted scenes or the script rather than actually what you see in the film, but we try and we try and keep it interesting and engaging, and hopefully we've, we've done that. There's enough gear shifts, I think, in that documentary. It's not sort of the same onto the next scene, and let's talk about the, you know, the writing, and let's talk about the satire. We try and, like, try and like mix it up. Well, I, I just literally ticked off my next six questions because in, in that you seem to have answered them all, but... <laughs> <laughs> we can keep talking don't you worry about that well, mate. We right. let, let's, let's focus in on that part of RoboDoc the, the part that's available at the moment that's dedicated to the 1987 original I think the character is a modern knight in armour the idea of landing a superhero within the consciousness of western civilization a vision that came to me that there was this overlay of the American Jesus there's a sincere purity about his goals, and yet he promises action. What are your prime directives? Serve the public trust. Protect the innocent. Uphold the law. Robocop. Who is he? What is he? 
where did he come from? We wanted to grab people by the throat. We were so on target. The movie is so precise. What really made it a masterpiece, I think, is Paul Verhoeven. The Verhoeven mantra was blood, I want more fucking blood. You know, shoot them up and blow it up, bloody it up. They were putting more squibs on my body than anyone in film history. I always saw the gang as guys that were having fun. Can you fly, Bobby? I said, this guy's a real sadistic bastard. <laughs> But he enjoys it. Being part of a gang and being a badass. How many kids want to play that? Your move, creep. All I remember is a wall of flame coming straight at me. We were all like, ah! We just did some stuff that you wouldn't do as a professional actor. I like it! Peter Weller was very serious. That are alive, you're coming with me. He's one of the most disciplined people I've ever met in my life. Murphy, it's you. One of the greatest challenges I ever had in my entire life to make that work. Definitely the best robot suit ever. The chest will be the first thing to react, and then the neck, and then the head. Almost every sound in Robocop was created and recorded originally for the picture. Stop motion adds to the effect of robots. You can infuse it with a certain mechanical look. I'm now authorized to use deadly force. Drop it! Robocop was a very difficult shoot. Maggie blow this cocksucker's head off. I don't think anybody had a good time on that picture. It was non-stop. The MPAA changed rules after that movie. The whole film was pretty much in danger. They're gonna shut us down. He felt that he was betrayed. I was dead. You're gonna be a bad motherfucker. Mixing politics and action. I think we got there first. Wow, this is different than anything I'd ever seen. Get them before they get you. It's a great satire. Future seeing in a way, and people got a kick out of that. I'm sure it's only a glitch. Real sophisticated comedy. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> you've, you've, you've already answered part of this question, but when that Kickstarter campaign drew to a close, and you guys knew the budget that you had to play with, how did the planning go kind of immediately from there? Because obviously you generated quite a bit more cash than you were aiming to do. Was it Ed Newmeyer? Was he the person you approached first? Or, or was that or was that done before the Kickstarter campaign even began? Yeah, Ed was definitely before the Kickstarter campaign began. What we normally did, we'd always have a few people. So once we had Ed on board, I think Michael Miner may have been next uh, on the list. He was pretty quick in, in coming on board. Even John Davison was quite fast coming on as well. So I think once we got a few good people, but we always liked to do that before we did the Kickstarter, we like to have a few names already attached to us. You give some credibility to, to the, the Kickstarter then, and obviously then it's not just going. You know, we're trying to get these people. We've actually got these people. And I think as the, as it was going, the uh, Kickstarter, we were getting more people as we were going. So that was a month Kickstarter. I know we got Tom Noonan as we were going, adding people onto that list. It was Ed first, and that kind of snowballed. I mean, obviously straight after it was straight into into production. So we probably finished that in the May, the Kickstarter, and we were. We're flying out to the States in, in the uh, July. So there wasn't really, other, other than obviously us three and Adam and obviously Mikey being in the States, having conversations and booking studios, stuff like that. Uh, we thought we were rich with 33 grand. I think we thought we were at that stage. Uh, it's cost us 250 grand, it's cost us. So, you know, uh, when, when, we, when we call con artists, we're the worst con artists because it comes out of our own pockets. Um, 
So it, and that, that's been an issue as well over, over the years, obviously, is the cost, you know, and, and the increased cost to get it done and get it right. But it's been worth it, you know, all these, these things are. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we were. We were pretty quick into production. And when we came back, we then were still doing outsourcing because Gerald, who's our DP, was doing other stuff for us for about couple of months i believe it was i think i remember we had one studio day do you remember this uh, eastwood and chris where we had them booked in and then we turned up at studio and it was locked and it was bruce lock and kurtwood smith and i remember thinking shit and actually the other day i was i was messaging kurtwood about obviously the doc uh, well he's actually his wife joan i was looking for the, the the facebook dms and it was on there where i was apologizing to her because she'd made a ride at the student it was locked and she was going oh, don't worry about it these things happen and i genuinely thought we'd lost kurt because of that because how hard it was to get in and then he turns up in a fucking place he's locked so we were it was shooting- remy ryan as well wasn't it the girl from robocop three oh, yeah, those two had a little bit of a hangout i think remy yes yeah, shit yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so we were shooting for a good few months after. Um, and then, obviously, we shot some stuff in London as well uh, with John Castle, uh, who was obviously the bad guy in number three. And then, it, you know, as these things always do, but it, it, it stalls for various reasons. You know, we um, we got in production on, on Pennywise. I said this the other day. I'll do it very, very quickly now. Our, our original kind of, like, business model was with Leviathan and Brewster. We did one documentary as that was being released, we filmed the next one and it was going to be a year thing, really. Each year one would be released and then at the same time we'd be in production another. And that was always the plan. It was genuinely the plan for RoboDoc as well because RoboDoc grew and grew and grew and we had then people missing who we needed. It went on and on and on. I think, And then these things happen, obviously personal things happen and life changes and, and then I think we kind of found momentum again and obviously got back together to get it done. Um, and then obviously Weller and that kind of stuff and the five-year journey with him. It was just a weird kind of like evolution, I think it was, of the project. We would have hoped, as like with Brewster, we shot Brewster in three weeks, came home. I think we had one outsource, I think it was only, wasn't it, the cinematographer. Uh, and that was it, and we were ready to go. And that's what I think we were thinking, shit, we got back. We missed out on a few people. Miguel obviously had said yes when we were in the States, and it was a confirmation from his people. He was interested, he was going to do it. I think a couple of days before we were shooting him, uh, he was ill. Uh, and we kind of knew why he was ill. I don't think the general public knew at the time. We've had a couple of times on these projects. We, we find out people uh, are obviously, unfortunately, aren't well. We can't say anything to anybody. And then obviously then it was delayed. And I think we were trying to get him after an outsource, I believe. And then obviously he passed away. So, yeah, he just kind of... Uh, we were probably shooting for two years, I reckon. Probably longer than that, maybe, before Weller. Well, you, you mentioned... Um, Rob Boutine. Now, I think Harry, you and I spoke in in September 2018. I think about, I think it was probably November the following year. We actually got Phil Tippett on the podcast, and some of the most interesting points of the discussion we had with him were actually after I, I hit that stop button, and we carried yeah. on chatting for about 25 minutes afterwards. And one of the questions was, "Do you know anything about Rob Boutine? If he's still active in any way in the industry, you know, why he's he's kind of like persisting to kind of not." give interviews and stuff like that and, and Phil kind of said well my understanding is he had a bit of a bad experience with uh, an interview that really kind of didn't go well and he was kind of misquoted he caused some bother for him yeah and, and that was it he kind of made this decision to, to kind of never to give an interview again and as great as it it really would have been great for him to be on RoboDoc but certainly there's enough reference made to him and his work and I think more than anything Rob Boutine's works you know it speaks for itself on you know, on The Thing and on RoboCop and you know all the other films he's worked on yeah it you know how close did you get to getting him on you know it, obviously you say you spoke to you know an empty voice on the end of a telephone <laughs> 
we'd, we'd heard this. I mean, I'll let you two finish in a second, but we heard the same story. I think we were kind of made clear to us. He was doing a, a bonus feature for The Thing, I think it was, as a release out of that. And he was yeah. misquoted and apparently really, really pissed him off. Yeah. He wasn't in the industry at the time. He came back to do that. When we'd heard that, we tried. And again, I know there's two stories. One, obviously, with the phone call and one with the picture, which lads will tell you. I think we kind of just knew. And, and unlike Weller, where it kind of he was still active, Weller, and he was becoming more active, actually, in the Robocop world as we finished production. I think the fans haven't really been negative towards them because they just genuinely know. And you never know what would happen. I mean, no, no, look now, you probably contact us when he sees the doc and we have to do a 40th anniversary uh, release of you never oh. know these, these things do happen we've had it before in a project where you know where people have come out of the blue you know after and said well no one told me about this project it's like fucking hell we tried to get old of you we spoke to your agent but there was no contact details at all other than Fred was there um, and again the lads would yeah I mean there's there's that there's a Facebook page I'm on called In Search of Rob Boteen so it's it's obviously like you know he is a bit like a Howard Hughes of the effects world, isn't he? So hiding away, being the mystery man. But yeah, Eastwood obviously told that story about you know Ed Newmyer calling him uh, on our behalf um, and hearing like a just a heavy breathing, <laughs> heavy breathing down the phone. But he showed us one photo as well, and he said, "Oh, I've got a photo of Rob actually at my um, barbecue recently." So we're like, "Oh, let's have a look and see how he's looking today." You know that long haired fox. And the, um, all he showed us was a picture of someone wearing a balaclava and a pair of glasses. And I was like, what's fucking face jacker or phone jacker? Phone jacker. <laughs> Could have been anyone. So, I mean, it kind of added to that air of mystery. And I think, as Gary said, you know, we, we've historically always had that one person that's kind of got away uh, from a project. You know, Clive Barker with Leviathan. We had so many instances where we thought we had him and then we didn't. And we went to his house and gone as what. And then for us, Robodoc was definitely Weller and Rob Boteen. And Weller, as we said, we, we figured, well, he's still doing stuff. We've got a chance. And then for five years, we believed we didn't have a chance. Whereas with Rob Boteen, we absolutely tried as many avenues as possible. But there was, when you just know something, you know, you know the answer already, basically. You're like, we're not going to get him. We're not going to find him. If we did, I, I don't think I'd still be breathing right now. No. I think we I think we even talked, I'm sure we did, about getting his address of, of Ed and maybe going down. Because we, 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 yeah, Phil, Phil Tippett, towards the end of the conversation, he said, guys, look, I've been in touch with him. I, I don't think he'd been in kind of recent contact with him. But he gave us a kind of little, I don't know, a little clear as to how we might you know get hold of him he said if you ever manage to speak to rick baker he's your guy to go to um as far as i'm aware rob is now heavily into real estate um, yeah. he's, he's kind of backed away completely from the film industry but if you ever want to make contact with him rick has you know i know kind of rick has been a go-between between rob and a few people he said i don't think he's going to budge on his stance of you know just staying away from interviews and the like but he's the guy to go to and it was one of those things where I thought, yeah, who am I? I'm, I'm not going to get him to kind of turn around on this. So I, I never kind of followed it. But it, it was kind of nice for Phil to throw that little yeah. bone you know, to, you know, to yeah, us. I think the same was us with Ed, because obviously we know that Ed had been to been physically with him the weekend before, or what I think it was, wasn't it? Or it was a few weeks before, like July the 4th or something like that, you know, before we'd come to a barbecue. So we thought, you know, that was a chance for us. Fair. I know when Eastwood had the, was there for the phone call, we genuinely thought that maybe he'd say yes. And I do, I even, I'm sure 
we had we had the contact about trying to track you know get the address off the off of Ed and, get, and arriving there and just knocking the door or something and then probably being shot. <laughs> and, and his dogs apparently he has little chihuahuas or something. I remember someone telling us. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a shame he's not in it. And I think you know what he's done for the industry is amazing. Yeah. And, but I think Eastwood's you know and obviously the questions that Chris asked and obviously Edson Eastwood's done. I think he's done an amazing job in celebrating that person. Do you know what I mean? And again, yeah, it's easy to say this when you do a documentary and someone's not in it. But I don't think you miss him because he's 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 so in it. Do you know what I mean? He he he's layered for that project, isn't he? So yeah, it's the same with Miguel Ferrer. Obviously, he couldn't yeah. be in it yet. You know, his presence is felt because there's so many references made to him, and you know how much a, of a kind of party boy he was, and, and the fact that he was just kind of he was going and watching scenes being filmed, which he had no part yeah. of, because clearly he, he kind of had a you know a vested yeah. interest in this film. I love I love a behind the scene photograph of him, which Yolanda Williams gave us, and he's wearing a Return and Dead T-shirt. It's my favorite film of all time. I'm like, <laughs> shit, he's wearing that fuck. Why is he yeah. wearing that shirt? Why? You know, we need to know. So, and uh, yeah, it's a shame because you know that would have been just for me personally to. To dig around there. Yeah, I, I've got an answer to that one, Gary. It's Paul, Paul, Paul Salmon because it's uh, Ryan, no, isn't it? Return Paul, of Living Dead. Paul Salmon, no, the first one. Was. Oh, um, he was the publicist, wasn't he? Number two, he was publicist for. It was one, wasn't it? Because he was Orion. It wasn't Orion the first one. It was, wasn't it? Hemdale. Oh, it was Orion. It was Hemdale, then bought by Orion. Shut up, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Eastwood agrees with me. I, I was just, I was going to tell tell Gary that he wasn't wearing that t-shirt. All I just comped it in just to make you happy. What? <laughs> 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 right, come on, guys. I've got to look like I'm interviewing you here because I, I have to ask some questions because you're answering all my questions like unprompted. It's, you know, it's kind of the easiest interview ever. So aside from Dr. Weller, who was the person that was hardest to either find or to eventually get on board? Tom Noonan was really hard for the second film. Really, really hard. Because he, he didn't want to do it, I think, as well. We was trying to track him down. We had to do an outsource on that. But I think, again, I'll let Eastwood tell this book. I know he told you the other day about, about uh, Bixby Snyder. Because that was a hard one. I was going to go there and I was literally going to point to you, Gary, to say you just work wonders. Like, I didn't know how difficult it was. And then all of a sudden he was in the studio. And then you and Mikey were just saying, you know how hard it was to get Bixby Snyder, yeah. get SD Namath in here. And um, he was fantastic. And... and yeah, what was fun about about SD Namer, so he's the I'd buy that for a dollar guy, was he had no idea. So me, Chris and I, we sat down with everybody afterwards to have a chat, just about just a fanboy out on everybody, basically. And I was like, SD, like, do you know that you're on T-shirts? Do you know that you can get mugs? Do you know that you've become like a meme or gifts? Or And he was like, I don't know what any of this is that you're talking about. So I was like on redbubble.com or whatever, showing him that his T-shirt, okay. you know, that people could get these. And he was like, wow, he's still got the voice. He still is pretty much that character, isn't he, Chris? He was like, wow. He's like, he just couldn't believe the fact that like he had, a, there was like an afterlife out of Robocop. He shot it over like, a, it was like a, a couple of evenings, I think. And Verhoeven did direct the company. Um, the Bixby Snyder segments as well despite what it might say on IMDb he was there for that and and, and um, interestingly one of the women that's in the scene Heather um, Heather Teague I've been speaking to her and she's quite pally with me at the minute but she was one of the beautiful blondes that Bixby was knocking about with but she didn't want to do or she couldn't get anybody to do a green screen interview she's like I can do it in my kitchen I was like no we need to be green screen so she was going to be in it for literally like five seconds but um yeah anyway going off on a tangent but yeah SD he had no idea that um that he was like this little this sort of mini um superstar of the 80s if you like on like Twitter and on social and he becomes sort of a gif and yeah he, we sat down with him and he was I know Chris you got, got him to do like some quotes 
books with your poster and stuff and he was just he was amazing wasn't he to see and yeah. and it was only afterwards that Gary that Gary and Mikey said how difficult it was because we yeah. just you just called him up but he's like he's, he didn't have an agent he's got no. he's, he's not on social media we did a search on Facebook and then I went through about a hundred posts where somebody mentioned his name and I found somebody on Facebook who then who's I had a photograph with him and was with him at either a barbecue and I messaged that guy and then he's like oh yeah he's my you know he's my friend and then it was like literally getting hold of him the other two I remember being difficult but actually brilliant was obviously I'm a big um, villain fan so Ronnie Cox was not really engaging with us at all at first it was only when I sent him a 12 inch figure of himself which I had <laughs> which somebody made a head of a beautiful head of, uh, of, of Dick Jones so I got did he have disproportionately long arms uh, no unfortunately not <laughs> I know uh, and so I sent him that figure and I think because I sent him that and he loved it he was like oh yeah I'll come in and do the interview and then that's that, that kind of cemented that bribery and the other one was Ray we couldn't get a hold of Ray we were contacting his manager constantly contacting his management team obviously you know access we had no response at all, ignoring us. And then I remember being in the office and sending a, a tweet to him. And the tweet was, you know, I had him a tweet. We've got Paul McCrane, uh, you know, Emilio. We've got, you know, uh, Jesse Devoins, obviously his character. Is it Joe, Joe Cox? His character. And we've got, you know, um, what's, his, what's his name? Calvin. Calvin Young. And, you know, and we're getting Colonel Smith. Where's Ray Wise? You know, where is you know, Leon Nash? And then he directly messaged me and said, oh, I'd love to be in it. Where are you? And I said, oh, we're in a studio. And then he, he was literally as, as, as he turned up 20 minutes later, 15 minutes later, he was there. But again, it was like back in the day, it was quite probably, I think actually it's harder now to get people than it was back in the day because I think people have got latched onto it now. Obviously how easy it is for people to contact, you know, via the way we used to do it. It was tracking people through photographs, through Twitter, through, uh, you know, um, Facebook and whatnot. Very smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember, doing, I remember doing it a good, very, very off topic, very quickly. Vanessa Scotland by finding some council records where she had planning permission for an extension in her garden, and it was a, it was a local council document. And I thought, there's no one else could image in Bournemouth. And then, then the address was there, so I wrote a letter to her. And that, so you can find people by stalking, basically. But I think everybody else came on board. If I remember correctly, I don't think we had other than this logistical trying to get people. You know, and and I think the, the stunt guy Russell, when we were over in Texas, he couldn't do it because he was working, and that was a couple of years after. I think that was, wasn't it? We had him. The dream shoot, we got him. Yeah, yeah. So, like all those projects that we did subsequently, there was always like, <laughs> let's make a day for Robo Doc. Yeah, we he did. Yeah. in Robo Doc, and I think that goes back to like the growth of the project kind of happened organically somewhat intentionally because we wanted to, you know, go into things deeper than other mediums had before. But with Eastwood kind of stringing this edit together and saying, boys, we've virtually got every scene that was kind of the, the bug. And then we were like, right, let's, let's ride that giant, (laughs) that, you know, stupidly giant wave. And let's, let's work with that ever expanding edit. Okay. We've got every scene covered what's missing and then it was just kind of like i think the following year with pennywise uh, inadvertently the adam Frazel situation happened so i i wanted again for robocop 2 and then when he spouted off this anecdote about being in the first one i was like ah, oh, we've got the uh, mom and pop store scene uh, covered now and um, i think it was then on hollywood dreams the following uh, actually probably two years that, that was 2019 
Eastwood had lined up Stage yeah. Parker, Dr. Tyler. So that was incredible. I think we were going to have, I mean, another missing person, I think we, we have. but And this was just unfortunately, um, you know, scheduling conflicts and God knows what, was Mike Medavoy, the head of Orion, would have been a nice extra piece to the puzzle because he certainly referenced a lot. Um, and I think a lot of credit has to go to him as well when you hear some of the anecdotes uh, in the documentary. But um, we had Russell Towery. And then an interesting one was having watched, I think it was the original trailer we had put together, but I was watching the rape scene and Gary had subsequently worked on a police academy documentary. So he's interviewed the bulk of the cast there and having looked at his photos and watching that scene from Robocop again of the rape victim, I can't believe that I'd never clocked that the sidekick rapist, not the one that told him it, was Scott Thompson from Police Academy, Blue Oyster Bar. Instantly, I thought, so given I knew Gary had his contact details, I'd spoken to him, and he's, he is such a lovely, down-to-earth bloke. Yeah, down-to-earth. <laughs> <In a scene. laughs> I was like, get him over as well. So, like, at one point, I think, with Hollywood Dreams and Nightmares, we had, like, three or so different shoots happening at once. Yeah. One of which was, all right, let's use that much better green screen than we had for the initial production and get some more people. I think Eastwood found one of the guys, Kevin Kacheva. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's just that's another we example went, of how this thing grew and grew. We went down as well, again, looking into the second unit's director. So we got Mark, Mark Goldblatt involved, who was the editor of Terminator, which helped for the legacy section where we talk about the, the Robocop trailer being paying homage to the Terminator soundtrack. And he was, this is the thing, Sky, so we were given via John Davison a load of production notes. So we had the extras on there. We had the special effects, the stunt coordinators. I mean, I tried via Facebook and via other means to get um, some of the stunt performers, some, especially the women that played Nancy Allen. I tried to, 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 to get some of those, but we didn't end up going that, that route. But we got Russell Towery. We got Mark Goldblatt, who was the second unit director. I even tried Monty Hellman. And being a massive Robo fan, you'll know Monty Hellman is the fact that he was second unit on some of the action scenes to help Verhoeven out. But it was either his wife or his daughter, who's going back a while now, who said that he wasn't uh, able to. I think don't think he was very well to be able to do that. So yeah, and Michael Miner does mention the fact that he was originally going to be the second unit director, but then had to move on to um, a, a film that he was um, that he'd helped write or produce, and ended up moving on. So he wasn't as involved in Robocop in terms of the shoot like Ed Neumeyer was. So that's why you don't get any behind the scenes video with Mike Miner there. He turned up for the gas station. He was there for a few other scenes. He obviously shot the TJ laser scene, um, which it was him and Ed. They were given $800 to, to shoot that. John Davison said, if you do this, because he wanted to use some stock Orion footage to go on that TV screen. And they were like, no, we need to do a satire of, of um, TJ Hooker. So basically they said, you've got $800. I've got the notes. John Davison's like, you've got $800, no more, no more. I don't want anybody coming. You need to, you need to find the jumpsuit and find the location. And, and that was him and... Uh, that was Mike Miner and Ed Newmeyer that sorted that. But we listen, we went for everybody. So like, if there's anyone out there, and we do see comments where they're like, why, why is this person not mentioned? Why have they not done that? We tried absolutely everywhere. I remember, uh, sorry, we tried every, every, absolutely everybody. I remember when we first rocked up in LA, one of my favorite days, and you remember this, Gary, was like uh, us all going to Hard Rock Cafe, all getting our laptops out and going, right, who do we want in this dock? Like, we've got 16 people, but who else? Let's get the ball rolling now. And that was so much fun. We had like pancakes and all the big American jobby breakfast. And then we were uh, picking out people for you and Mikey to sort of source for that three week stint that we were out. But we tried everybody, Sky, honestly. So. so so aside from actual, you know, the people you got on then in terms of people you were interviewing, 
you mentioned there that John Davison was was kind of valuable in in helping you research stuff. Yeah. Because one of the things that kind of blew my mind is, is some of the things that you guys have unearthed on the dock. Now, for me in particular, I loved hearing those original recording sessions of John Davison doing the voice of Ed 209. Like, these are things that I thought, well, how are these things still, how are they even being kept? Clearly, someone is archiving this stuff and, and, and gives that much of a shit to actually keep these things. Because I, I just, you know, things like that were literally like catnip to me. Yeah. We want to give a shout out as well. So it was John Davison who, who gave us so much stuff. That Chris and I were just so giddy once we saw it all. But Steve Lee, who came on board, who's in the documentary, who was a sound librarian, who was active during the Robocop production. He's not got a credit on there, but he was in and around. He was the one that archived a lot of the sound effects. And he worked with, oh, what's his name? He worked with the, the actual sound um, artist that we do reference in the doc. Oh, um, John Pospeth. John, John I not John Pospeth, but Stephen Hunterflick. There was another chap, David Whitaker. That was it. David Whitaker was the yeah. one that his job it was to literally take all of the recordings and create a catalogue for all the Robocop sound effects. So we do cover the David, and David was um, he was emailing us uh, back and forth. This is the thing as well. Mike Medavoy has been involved in the doc. He's not in it, but he provided us with pictures. He was the one uh, DMing us, asking how we are. I mean, he literally DMed us uh, like two weeks ago on our Twitter, just saying, "Hi guys, heard that you've got a deal." He logistically, as Gary mentioned just couldn't do it because believe it or not the tricky thing is getting it getting a green screen set up and we just didn't want to film people in their offices or in, in a kitchen so mike mike medavoy was involved with it he provided us with all the pictures that you see of himself in the orion office with the orion screen in the background there's pictures of him with some other executives that's all provided for by mike medavoy but yeah the the, the absolute saints on this project uh, John Davison providing us with all of the archive that you I see. Think, well, it was Ron South that gave us the sound footage. I'm sure it was of Ed Two and So we got Ron South got it. So he digitised uh, yeah, yeah. some stuff. Demont as well, who's a big um, Robocop fan, who managed to purchase some archive off of a massive another massive uh, Robocop fan who was uh, prominent on Robocop archive. But John Davison and Steve Steve Lee provided us with similar things to Ron South, okay. which just in a different form. Some of them were like wives rather than MP3s and things like that. But yeah, Ron South was great. But Steve Lee, massive shout out to Steve Lee because he was the yeah. one, he was our go-to because obviously where in the, in the UK, he was the one that was going to John Davison's house, going to all these people's houses or even the institution that had some of the, some of the documents and scanning them for us, getting them shipped out in like, they're literally behind me, all the scans, <laughs> literally all these boxes that cost me like 200 quid post. I remember telling Gary, I was like, Gary, we've got all this stuff, you're gonna have to fork out 200 quid for the postage. But yeah, he he was an absolute savior for getting us all this stuff because it's one thing finding it, then you've got to get it here. Yeah. And I got it um, digitized via ITV up in Yorkshire to be able to obviously work with it in the in the actual on the actual timeline. But there's like you know there's people like Paul Salmon as well, isn't there, who really helped. Uh, again, more probably on number number two, but obviously he was like really keen at getting obviously materials for us as well. And then there's cast and crew, you know, people like you, you landed have photographs and, you know, and Russell brought photographs in. It's always great people coming with stuff. Marky always says to people, you know, when we do the interview uh, invitation, anything you have bringing with you, we have a scanner. Sometimes you get people go, will come in and go, oh, I've got this at home. Why don't you bring it in? Other people bring in boxes. I remember, I, had to, I remember Paul brings, I had, to sign, I had to sign a release in I think Paul Salmon, do you remember? Where you put a box of stuff in and, uh, we we had like a limited time to scan it, and I think we were sc maybe scanning the hotel rooms. We were. But we went back the next the next year. Okay. We went actually to Paul Salmon's house. We did you when he nearly died? Did Adam in the car? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things in the docks as well. I think. I mean, saying about all the archive we got in Robocop, I think we were kind of quite surprised how little 
how do you put it, like candid imagery there was. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, homemade imagery. Whereas like on the reverse of that, with Pennywise, uh, John, the co-director there, John Campo Piano. Um, and I think it's because it's quite obvious why all these kids starred in this film. So they have these overzealous parents who are just going trigger happy with their old school analog cameras. So they kind of give us, you, you know, we had a wealth of our own content or, you know, directly given to us content to use for that. Whereas with Robocop, I think actually, yeah, what we found was great, but it was surprising actually there was not a huge, huge deal of photos we had never seen. I think that was the, that's the main thing, you know. Certainly if you've scoured the internet since it existed, you know, nearly every day for your sad life, like this guy, then, you, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen a low-res one of that, I've seen that one. So to be honest, it's amazing how visually, how incredible modest as I say it, we've made this, Eastwood's made this, we've actually quite limited resources, but when we do have something that's cool, we make sure to make a sort of show and dance of it, like the, the outtakes footage, you know, which was mind-blowing when Eastwood sent me that, uh, you know, the shot of um, Robocop when he's taken down by Ed 209 the first time, um, going home, uh, what else did we have there? Eastwood? Oh, the death of Murphy, I think, the hand blown off. That's hand blowing off, yeah. And then Robocop driving. We've literally got like 15 minutes of that, which we didn't put all of it in the documentary. But yeah, there was so much. I tell you one thing as well. This is what I'm like. I'm, I, you probably already know this. I'm like a perfectionist, a bit OCD with stuff. We would get behind the scenes images, and we got some, as as Chris has mentioned, like not publicist or, or publicity images, but images that people would just take on the set. And it would be John Davison in a production office or Arnie Schmidt in an office. And I remember, and behind, so in the actual picture, if you look behind Arnie Schmidt up, there are like pictures of, you know, pictures that I would have loved as like actual scans. And I'm there going, I wonder if I can use some sort of like AI or just blow that up if we could use it. But yeah, that's the, that's the thing. I'm getting so giddy that we've got this new stuff that no one's ever seen. But then I'm looking in the background going, oh, but they've got all the storyboards up there that we don't have. And how do I get it? Yeah, all that stuff. Your mind just starts worrying and you do get carried away where you're going, this is awesome, but I want more. You just can't get enough. And I'm sure there'll be stuff that comes out. I'm yeah. sure somebody will find something in the garage. I'm sure John Davison will go, he's what I found these tapes. And we're going to go, oh, I'm going to be a bit heartbroken. But the stuff that we've managed to find, because that's always the case, isn't it? You always hear about documentarians going, yeah. as soon as there's more publicity for the doc they've just made, it happened with Friday night, didn't it, Gary? Like well, one yeah, of the cast yeah, members said, I've just found all this uh, 16 mil um, behind the scenes stuff. And you're like, oh, I could have done with that six months ago. So I guess that leads on to my next question, Eastwood, that how many hours worth of footage did you have to pare down the doc from and, and what was your plan in terms of a narrative for the documentary to follow? So it's 77 hours of footage for the first one. So I literally got that in a project and consolidated that to, to just to, uh, you know, figure out how much work had actually gone into it. There's something like 1,800 com uh, green screen composites. There's so many things that I show, obviously showed Chris. 77 hours worth of footage from 65 interviewees. That's not including the behind-the-scenes stuff. So if you include all of the behind-the-scenes clips, you're probably talking like 90 minutes or something, which is a lot. And then in terms of like narrative, Chris sort of touched on it. So basically, when we set up that initial Kickstarter, we, we had 16 people booked, and we were just like, whatever comes our way, we're going to take it, and we're going to just flesh this out, and we're going to do as much, as much, as much as we can. And then it just grew and become this like behemoth, and it's, it, it became too much for you know, a crew of four or five people, but we took it on anyway, and that's why it's taken so long to get it out. But then as soon as I got back and transcribed it all, which took weeks and weeks and weeks and is pretty tedious for anybody that's transcribed in, in, um, footage in a, in a non-linear, it was, right, Chris, we've got everything. We can do a scene by scene here. And I think what I'd done is literally do the death of Murphy first to show, show the guys as like a concept of look how well-rounded this is for one scene. And obviously it's a pivotal scene. And then I started doing 
So I had all the assemblies. I did the Death of Murphy first, then I did Ed 209. So I basically took out, did all of the major deaths first to show the guys to go, we've got all the deaths. We've got Melton Emil, did all those first. Um, the stuff that I did last was like the origins, basically the bookends, which I've always I've always done that when I'm when I'm working. My, that's just how I like to work is basically get the meat of it done and then do the outro and then do the intro first because the intros will get people hooked. So do that, uh, do the intro ver- uh, at the very end. Sorry, do that last. Um, spend a bit of time doing that. So that I did the exact same for RoboDoc. So yeah, it was just a case of going through it scene by scene. And then once we did get specific people, I'd leave placeholders and go, right, OK, now I've got. Adrian Sachs, who's one of the other bitches, and it's, she calls herself a bitch, so I can say it. So we've got Diane Robin, who's, who's plays Chandra, who's one of the bitches. Then we've got Adrian Sachs, who, who plays the other bitch. So I should stop saying bitch, and I'm going to get into trouble. <laughs> but um, once we, I, I obviously, which I managed to, to to sort that out with Adrian, and I was so chuffed that we got her, and we got one of her pals to shoot that by green screen and make sure that it was lit properly. That's one thing too. If you watch RoboDoc, the women are lit beautifully because they it was, it was sort of part of the deal was i want to make sure i look nice and obviously we're going to do that but then the men i remember chris wanted them to look more menacing and so there's a bit more contrast to them which was an absolute pain in the ass to key because you get a load of noise um on people's faces but it look it does look pretty cool now when you look at it yeah we got adrian and it was just filling the holes really and it was it, a lot of fun i don't want to make out like it wasn't enjoyable it was just it was the volume of it that was tricky but uh, it was so fun to do i don't think any of it was like difficult or challenging it's like working on our favorite film we're listening to people talk about our favorite you know parts from this film that we've loved since being like three years old so it was so much fun it was just the the scale of it so obviously this has been you know a big undertaking for you guys and i guess you know that, that's a massive understatement now it's all done in your own time because you've all got regular day jobs how did you manage to fit in such a, a huge creative endeavor amongst your work and family commitments so again, evenings, weekends, uh, lockdown helped massively. So when that happened, I was up here. This is all where it all happened. I was up here doing it again. I love doing it. I was itching to do it. I think my partner, Camilla, was like, oh, he's upstairs constantly. But the thing with a passion project, you never want it to feel like a chore if you can help it. It became where the stuff that I did not enjoy was the the, the delivery of it, the QC and um, working with other other people. I've been so close to doing this between me, Chris and Gary for seven years that as soon as you bring in sound houses and QC teams and other people that are requesting stuff and asking you to do it all, render it all off your machine, we had to do like a textless version for international sales, should, should that happen? So I had to basically render out a four hour documentary without without a lot, of the, a lot of the text on there, which was an absolute pain. So like that stuff was, was tricky and obviously we had deadlines for that. But everything else was, um, was so much fun. And uh, yeah, evening weekends in between jobs. I've been a freelance editor. I work for a broadcaster now in the UK, but I've been a freelance editor for for quite a bit of a stint. So that was easy anyway, because I'd be working from home on, on freelance jobs. So it was just doing stuff in between that. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Like, I think that's that's the thing. People probably look at it and go, oh, it must have been so tedious working, you know, doing doing all the great. He's like, no, it's amazing. I just wish there were five of me. <laughs> so the, the documentary has got its own amazing soundtrack now instead of the traditional score the film uses it's got this 80s synth soaked electronic soundtrack from loads of different artists now how did you get all of these amazing tracks together and how many of them were recorded specifically for robodoc so that was something again chris and i chatted about we knew that we wanted an intro and i want to give a shout out to basil murad who was who is known online as blood and chrome who is an artist who's a massive robot fan who unfortunately died last year um, via cancer 
but he um, reached out. We, we, we got Polly online because I loved his work because he, he worked um, on a synthwave uh, band's music video. So there's a synthwave act. If you're into that stuff, you'll know, called Gunship, who I absolutely love. He'd done their um, artwork and he's like a 3D animator. So I reached out to him and just said, look, we're doing a Kickstarter campaign if this comes to fruition and we've, you know, we've got the resource he up for doing something. And he was like, absolutely. And then he sort of just said, what do you want? But Chris and I said, we, you know, it'd be cool. It's the creation of Robocop. We'd love to see the behind the scenes of like Bob Morton um, pulling together how Robocop was done. If you imagine it being done on those monitors from, you know, that you see in, in Robocop's cage, do it through that. And then uh, basically, can you make it red and blue? And he did it, he directed it all himself. I'm not taking any credit for that. So all of the little Easter eggs that are on those screens, that was all Basil. Um, it's just a shame he, he's obviously not around to see the final result, but he did see bits of it. We did, so we did send him stuff. But he he done a track which was on our original Kickstarter campaign called Filthy Streets, which is on the, the it, it's on the um, spot. I think it's on the Spotify playlist. I know it was via SoundCloud. Some of the Spotify playlist people um, have stuff on SoundCloud, so there might be some missing. But he did that, and then Chris and I were just like, let's do the synthwave thing. I think now it's sort of been done to death a little bit, like synthwave. Ever since, like obviously Stranger Things and 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 the rise with um, with with more sort of retro synthwave stuff. So we're not the first to do it, and I don't think we were even in 2016. But um, Chris and I were like, let's stick some synthwave in there because we just know that we want to. You know, you, you think about that nightclub scene in, in RoboCop, and it's not not synth, but it's got that. It's definitely got that atmosphere of just being like badass and slick and just like pulsating. It's like if we want to elevate this stock and have like peaks and troughs and gear changes, then synthwave is the way to do it. Sean Hennessy's, uh, Sean Schaefer Hennessy's work with the orchestral was phenomenal, but we thought that it'd be awesome to have like something that's supplemental to that that works nicely. So you've got that sort of Robocop sound alike, but then you've got you've got some synthwave in there to just sort of offer something different and and and, and keep the sort of variety up. So it was just reaching out to people that I love to be honest guy. Chris has become a fan of this stuff since I've been sending it his way, Kallax and Lost Years, but I reached out to Lost Years was one of the first ones because he'd just done Kung Fury at the time. So if you see, I'm, I'm guessing you've seen that. But Lost Years was like, you can use whatever you want, just nothing from Kung Fury. And I was like, whatever. I was expecting him to say, you can use 30 seconds from this song, which I would have been happy about. And then basically from that, I, I got in touch with everyone else and said, look, um, Magnus from, from Lost Years has given us this catalogue. Like, we'd love to get you. And they were like, oh, Lost Years is doing it. I'll do it. And like everybody, we had, you've seen that Spotify playlist. There's 103 tracks. It's like 24 artists or something. But pretty much everybody said, yeah, Robocop, bloody love that IP. Like, absolutely, I'm a massive fan, whatever you need. And I was just so thankful. So I'm just like editing away to tracks that I've loved and been fans of, uh, been a fan of uh, before Robodoc. So it was an absolute pleasure doing that stuff. Yeah, that, that, that playlist goes for seven hours and four <laughs> minutes. I'm, well, I'm not even a third of the way through yet. Yeah. I in the car earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, this is the first question I, I, I thought of when um, you guys agreed to come on is, how did it come about that having refused to be involved several times that Peter Weller eventually came on board and how did it feel to finally get him five years after the project? I'll let Gary began? start with that one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the question is about how did he finally come on board uh, and a lot of that credit goes to obviously these lads and particularly to Eastwood uh, on the day. Uh, but yeah, so we kind of, just very briefly, we kind of been, we were genuinely trying for five years. There's no question about that. And, you know, traditionally the first avenue would have been for his agent uh, and his management team, which were doing that. We then went through Randy Moore, who was a friend. We went through Ed Newmeyer. We went through Nancy Allen. I mean, we went through everybody who we knew was talking to him to contact him. 
And we tried all the pulling the heartstrings bullshit and everything, and he just wasn't interested. And back then, he wasn't doing anything to do with Robocop. I think he quite clearly said, I think publicly, sorry, that he was done with Robocop, you know, it, it, as much as you need to know, he's already out there, which wasn't actually true. Uh, and, you know, he was obviously getting his PhD and that kind of stuff, and his honorary degrees. And he was very much focused on the Renaissance art kind of element and obviously becoming Dr. Peter Weller. But as we started, obviously, developing over the last five, seven years, suddenly he started doing conventions and he was doing KFC adverts and he was doing voiceovers and and, and he was appearing in Germany under the umbrella of Robocop at a convention and appear, appearing in Dallas. And then we're like, shit, hang on a minute, he's doing shit here. And then I remember he did a screening in honor of uh, Miguel Ferrer. And it, I think he basically said, you know, he's only doing it because of Miguel. And when he was on, we had it, somebody filmed it, sent us the clip, and somebody asked him in the audience in the Q&A at the end, why aren't you in RoboDoc? And he shouted, he said, uh, if you pay me six figures, I'll be in it. And we was like, fucking six figures? We can't afford fucking one figure. So I, I was going like down to like, you know, Rhythm Planet buying six action figures, and that wasn't what he meant, I think. So so that that was kind of like, you know, thinking, shit, he's just not, we can't afford that if he wanted to do it. And then I remember I had a friend, um, a really great artist called uh, Ali Cat Graphics, and he went to a convention with the our poster. I'd given him a poster as a gift, and he was had all the signatures on because uh, we, we had we had all these posters done. We never did it. It wasn't for the Kickstarter. We just did these posters. First time we ever really did it, where all the cast and crew signed it. We had like about thirty or forty of these posters signed by most people just sitting in the garage. So I gave John one of these from Ali Cat Graphics, and he went to the convention and asked Peter to sign it. And he refused to sign the poster. Uh, and he said, I'm not in this documentary. Why would I sign it? And then John saying to him, that's you on the fucking poster. It's yours. And he refused. And I think there was a little bit to do. And he eventually signed it. And I was thinking, shit, he's probably pissed off us now. Fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. The lads were invited. And I tagged along to a convention in Manchester. Manchester, isn't it? Uh, called For the Love of Sci-Fi. The guys who run that for the love of horror as well knew obviously that the lads were massive obviously Robocop fans and Weller fans they let us obviously show a couple of minutes of um, one of our features there or something Chris uh, Eastwood had put out already and then they allow the lads to interview Weller so that's when these two come into this story now because that's it's, it's their part now before we did negotiation with Mandrafa so that that's when we kind of got to that stage where the lads were on stage with him Shout, I was going to say a shout, another shout out to offer is um, both Ben Fenlon and uh, Neil Hibbert, who we know pretty well on Facebook, but know us enough as, oh, the Robocop guys. So they were the ones who actually suggested we interview him, which was just like, you know, I was dumbstruck. It's like, well, we didn't get him for the doc, but we're going to meet him. And so, yeah, we, we went along to this event and I would say interview him on stage. It's a bit like what you're suffering right now, Sky. It was kind of like one question and then he just went. <laughs> And just, and it's like, oh, I mean, this is the thing, right? Weller's quite quite a character, and I would say kind of somewhat intimidating as well. I mean, this is the guy who played, you know, my fucking hero. So it's just like, you say whatever you want. I mean, even at one point, I think I remember uh, when the Q&A happened, my wife, I think it's just at the point me and my wife were considering having a kid or something like that, and she threw out the question, like, about having kids because he had not long had uh, his kid, Teddy, and, uh, you know, he was like, you, you don't think, you just do it, do it. So it's like, shit, Robocop just told my wife I need to get on the job. <laughs> it took us six years. But basically, yeah, we, we 
did the we did the quote unquote interview, and it was only afterwards he wasn't aware who we were, and then Eastwood was just like as boisterous as he is. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go and tell him who we are. And we're all like, no, 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 no! Shut the fuck up! Shut the fuck up! Don't do it! Don't do it! And we just watched him like in slow motion go towards him. We were like, no! And you could see him kind of approach him from behind with all his security lackeys around him and everything. And um, yeah, he told he told him who we were. And I think the first thing that came out of his mouth was, "You didn't film that, did you? You know, no. Yeah. Oh my God, no, no, no. But in fairness, actually meeting him face to face." and talking with him and it was like holy shit this guy's really down to earth we got the photos with him he knew who we were then by this point uh, i think the next day i went i went to get uh, his signature and uh, he was you know it was like chris i was like oh my god he knows my name and he's like get me on this documentary and everything and then that's kind of where then gary started well <laughs> chatting with him further basically and then yeah i mean one thing i say about him before, before obviously east would uh, interject is that when we were talking to him over email directly for the like three or four years he was always like really civil and courteous always polite he never told me to fuck off you know i'd be nagging him and i'd i'd know i'd heard i'd hear he was going to be in germany so i'd message him saying we can come over to germany in the weekend you know we will film there you know and he'd always respond saying no but he'd always it wasn't just no it was like you know you know i don't want to discuss this blah blah in, in terms of robocop i really appreciate you asking me you know i'm really honored you've asked me and it was really kind of contrast what people were telling us about him being kind of this really awkward person, whereas he was always polite and he was never going, I want this on the, he never said, any time on an email, he said, I want six figures. You know, he said that, as, I think, because that's bravado and what an image you like to portray on stage. But he, he was, you know, after that initial kind of uh, thing that Eastwood and Chris did with him, the negotiation then with his management was was quite I say, quick but it was it was very civil back and forwards you know and and there was lots of kind of you know uh, do's and don'ts on contracts as it always is but he wanted to do it you know and i think that's what really pushed it that he actually wanted to do it in the end uh so it was just it's what how we could make it work for him as opposed to the other way around really yeah and you know he seemed to really throw himself into that interview he was he was passionate he was funny and, and he was just full of reverence for the film. And he also had this this um, sense of humility, and he, he admitted that he wasn't easy to work with at times. And I'm not. Gonna, this is not going to spoil anything for people who haven't seen the you know the documentary yet. But my favourite part of it is when Peter Weller said of the film, he said, "Ah, what a sad movie. You know, Robocop's essentially extraordinarily sad." Your gun. You asked for this. I brought you some food. Oh, thank you. I'm not hungry. like what you're going to see.
good to see you again, Marvin. Murphy had a wife and son. What happened to them? Well, after the funeral, she moved away. Where did they go? She thought you were dead. She started over again. I can feel them. then Weller later goes on to say that the most important line in Robocop is I can feel them but I can't remember them and he says that the tragedy of that is and referring to I guess Murphy's past life and, and the fact he's now lost his most of his physical body is that he'll never get it back because it's gone and that a kind of little analysis of what is my favorite scene in the film this really resonated with me because that's the key thing that has always elevated Robocop above other similar films if there are films which are similar is the kind of just just the sad kind of melancholy like aspect of the film about the fact that it addresses that and it kind of hits it head on and when he starts talking about that and and you know that there's other people you interviewed what's the guy who played Adele Zamora who plays Kaplan he, he's got a couple of really nice observations about some of the themes of the film and I, I, when I just hear people talking about things like that people who are involved in it I'm just literally my ears are pricking up and I'm like yeah this is just golden I think, I think that's the thing like it's an absolute no brainer for me personally when someone says what's your favourite film um, Robocop yeah. And I think it's one of those things that you can almost justify in retrospect now I think my mum kind of regrets ever recording it for me on ITV back in the day which was already heavily butchered and then cut further but I think why that this film still stands so much we've completely unpacked in this documentary without being overly modest and to kind of showcase why it, it's head and shoulders above its peers in my opinion because you watch it as a kid it's oh this is a cool fun action movie you watch it a little bit later in life you start to understand the humor and the satire but I think, you know, kind of what, late late teens, early 20s, I was like, fuck, man, this, this, my, my wife, I'll, I'll say it, I'll be candid. My, my wife takes the piss out of me that the one night we, we'd been out in Cardiff and I got back and I quite often would put on Robocop drunk. It's just my go-to film. And, um, I think I got a little <laughs> bit emotional and uh, said, oh, Robocop's got soul. And um, she takes the piss out of me for that. But you know what's great now? Here we are, some God knows how many years later since those teen nights out. And then, um, you know, to hear the cast and crew emphasize all these points of the film, I think we do a stand-up job of kind of unpacking, you know, the making of a film from a bygone era. But simultaneous to that, we've actually managed to showcase like the, the levels that this film works on, which as you kind of slightly alluded then, I think you did Sky, about like, oh, if there's anything else like it. And I really don't think there is another film like Robocop that just hits so many different points all at the same time in quick succession. Yeah, it, it's something about the film I've always been aware of is just there's, there's a, a tone like present. There's something about that that future Detroit that is just cold and heartless and sadistic and even even it comes across in the media breaks like they, they they kind of offhandedly throw in about this frank Fredrickson who's fighting for his life and then they they cut then to the next story that has probably got huge ramifications for the world but they're doing it in a kind of light-hearted way and it's like this and you know it's, it's a huge satire on the media and it's 
there's just so many layers to the film and I just used to watch it for the action and the violence but as I, as I got older then when I listened to that Criterion commentary and Paul Hoven's talking about the Christ metaphors and I'm like what? and then I watch it again and I'm like fuck me he's walking on water <laughs> he's walking on water he's been resurrected and now he's walking on water at the end and it's just like yeah it's all there and now aged whatever I was 20 when I saw that Criterion version for the first time I'm, I'm just picking up new things that I love about the film and it, it just it, it's just a gift that keeps yeah, on yeah. giving and like all the best films you can just watch it for the 50th time and find something new about it but without going into too much detail so as to spoil it I've got to mention Randy Moore's <laughs> Oreo <laughs> story which Peter Weller claims he has no recollection of um, I'll, 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 sorry Chris I don't mind jumping on this one because I, I, I think you're the first one to bring this up Sky by the way in, out of the people that we've done podcasts with and I think once everybody gets to that specific moment Twitter's going to blow up or X is going to blow up I think people are going to go fucking hell this story because we've had Cast and Crusade just a little bit of um, insider knowledge from that one it's definitely true because we had like four people tell us off camera and Randy was the only one willing to tell us it on camera yeah. <laughs> and yeah. going back to Weller's interview we looked out because he was absolutely sensational in that interview Chris and I had done a load of research beforehand sort of shitting ourselves going right we've got the main man and we need to make most of the opportunity. We had him for four hours, which sounds like a lot, but we didn't know if he was going to give us like stock answers or, you know, because he's one of those people that is academic and he's super intelligent and articulate and he's got one of the best memories of any actor out there. Like, you can recite, he can tell you what he's, you know, had for lunch on a specific day. is incredible. But we were worried that he was going to go, right, I'm sat down with these guys now. I've done this before. So Chris and I put so much research into, like, prioritising the questions. And we, 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 we got out the production documents that had his notes on it from back in the day, 1986, where we could literally feed him his thoughts. And, you know, the fact that he didn't want to read specific lines and told Verhoeven, I don't want to read these directives. Like, I want these. And Verhoeven convinced him. Like, there's all this stuff. And we... we, we um, sort of peppered him with that and he loved he loved the fact with that and then you're going to like this one as Sky as well once we told or Chris told um, Weller was like right where are you guys from I know we met in Manchester but where are you from and Chris said I'm from Wales and he was all over Chris when he said that because he was like I'm Welsh like my cousins were. and he was in he was like our best friends our best friend after that so that and that was like 25 30 minutes into it and we sort of won Weller over thanks to thanks to Chris's uh, <laughs> heritage but um <laughs> yeah, the, the Oreo story, which I know is going to come out and people are going to talk about it. And it is fun and Weller does acknowledge it. We, it you know, we, we asked Weller, we didn't avoid the question like Chris asked it in the interview. And, and he was, you know, th the thing with that question, Chris, when we think about it is we asked him, can you just talk, can you give us your side of the Oreo story? And he never once said, what Oreo story? He just said, Randy Moore's talking shit. And and I think there's some truth. There's, there's obviously a lot of truth that's been shed on that bit. So um, <laughs> that was one thing. Thinking when I was watching it back, I was like, he never once questioned yeah. what are you talking about. He's definitely got banter. I mean, yeah, that that interview. You know, despite having met him already, I'll still say again, <laughs> it's very intimidating. There are a few, there's a few people from this film's worth. If you look at the the caliber, you know, of the people that made this film and what came of it and the stories that came from it, it's not surprising to know that that you've got some strong personalities. You know, Verhoeven, some of the other guys, but certainly Weller. You know, where you're like, oh god, oh god, he's here. And at first, he's there's a bit of a cold distance. And I, I actually, to be honest, I remember at the start of the interview because we kind of asked some tee-up questions. Uh, he, you know, in fair play to him, he'd, he'd go on sort of tangents of, you know, uh, his career prior to Robocop. 
And all I was thinking in, in my head was like, right, we're going to have to recontextualize some of these points where he's going, oh, he's a maniac about someone else. I'm like, well, that'll work well for Verhoeven. And then obviously we had this little off-camera moment basically where, you know, because we were doing it over uh, Zoom, where he kind of asked the uh, Jim Koontz who filmed that interview, a prolific f- uh, filmmaker who does a lot of interviews for DVDs, brought the phone over to him and that's where we were like, right, he put us right up against his face. That's when he, we kind of, you know, broke character a bit and talked where we were from. The Wales thing came about, which was a bit mind-blowing. As Eastwood said, he, he opened up at that point. And then it was just, for us, absolutely incredible. And I'll, I'll say fair play to Eastwood, that we prioritised the questions. Everyone else had the questions asked in chronological order. With Weller, not knowing what we were going to get, Eastwood was like, right, we need to get the gold first, and then we'll backtrack through in a chronological fashion to get all the bits we may have heard before or, you know, may have even been said already in archive materials we've got. And then I think it was just that last half an hour where we were like, holy shit, we've got Weller to kind of go in-depth about Robocop. We've even touched upon the sequels, which he's never done, certainly in recent years, you know, apart from EPKs. And then I think we kind of just looked at each other. We might have been WhatsApping at the time, and there was this thing of like, fuck it, he's lubed up now. Should we go in? Some of like the, the controversial <laughs> questions so you know i think it started with so we hear you might have been a bit difficult on set Do you care to talk about it and i think what we've got is incredible because prior to that it might have looked a little bit one-sided if someone says something about someone who's not in the documentary they're a bit like oh and i think we someone did comment on that some time back where they were like oh oh you, you just got these people slating him because you haven't got him because oh, you got a chip on your shoulder it's like, well, no, it's not that. It's just the truth. And that's, again, we never like to sugarcoat shit with these documentaries. You know, we want honest accounts. We've had some history where people have gone, oh, no, maybe we should go lightly on that. It's like, no, you know, we'll do what Eastwood calls is the, the shit sandwich approach. You know, nice comments, crap comments, nice comments. But to get him to kind of like just, I mean, without batting an eyelid, go, you know, you try and wear that suit. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, people can... Fuck off if they're going to call me Peter Weller or Peter on set. You call me Robo. And then I think that was then the Oreo story. So that, to me, I think that final half, and you know, the gold was great, but that final half an hour or so in that interview where we, <laughs> we were just running through a list of all the questions we would dare ask at the start and actually get such animated responses was mind-blowing. And as you said, you know, we were naive and... Th- um, sorry, he is fantastic in the doc. But we were naive for so many years and believing like, yeah, no, I think we did have a great documentary without him. And because we were kind of succumbed to the fact like, yeah, maybe we're not going to get him. Uh, Eastwood had inherited or gone out and sourced all these never before heard interviews, you know, audio and video. Yeah, we can do it without him. And now just looking, it's like, how the hell did we think we're going to get away without him? And I genuinely believe without blowing smoke up our asses. It's, it's the best interview, having seen them and heard them all now, that he's ever given on the film. I just I can't get over how yeah. he just turns it on. I, I 100% agree, 100%. And I, I knowing what I do of him and having seen so many interviews with him and, and kind of things where he's on stage discussing stuff, he can come across as a prickly character. But in this, he, he, he threw himself into it so passionately. And as I described in the review of the, the, the documentary that I put on the site, he, he's animated. And he is funny, and he's kind of physically getting up and getting involved, and and like that bit at the end then when he says, um, 
but you, you kind of cap off the Oreo story perfectly where he says, yeah, yeah, you know, Randy Moy's a friend of mine, you know, I love him to bits, but Randy, you're full of shit, and it's just the way he finishes it we off. We did ask, intentionally ask as well, because I think we'd clocked again, got blown smoke up Eastwood's ass now, but the, the format, which I love, and I've absolutely copied and pasted on other stuff now, is utilising, and I'll let him go into that, but utilising footage of people to kind of work as a, you know, when you're talking about someone else, you use footage of them to potentially counteract that comment or, you know, sort of react to it. And I think knowing that that's how it works, I think we did kind of round up the Oreo story with, all right, Dr. Weller, what would you want to say to Randy right now? And he did. And I think he, the, the part about the robo team, we actually formatted that because he gave them all nicknames of which, well, I don't think they're that bad, but to some of them seem derogatory. And I, we kind of played that a bit like a quiz game with him. It was almost like, right, we're going to play a quiz with you now. <laughs> we, we heard that you gave your robo team all nicknames. And so that's why you can kind of see him kind of deliberating his answers in it. And it just, it works so well. I think it's an important part of doing these docs. You know, you, you watch some things and people give you the facts. We, we don't want that. We want people to emote a bit, you know. And I, I think not just him, the entire cast and crew of their interviews in this documentary. I've watched it again, and I'm just like, holy shit, how lucky were we to get so many animated people just on absolute fire? Calvin Jun is incredible. Yeah, he's yeah, he's brilliant. Now, one of the things that's finally cleared up in RoboDoc, to my absolute satisfaction, because have you ever been in a situation where there's something you think you know, but the public consensus goes against and you think, no, no, I'm right, I'm right. Now, it's that famous Robocop poster, Mike Bryan's famous poster, the one that, you know, you all know of Robocop getting out of the car. The documentary finally clears up with the fact that that wasn't a painting, as has so often been said. I've actually been told directly from people involved in the film that, no, it was actually a painting done by Mike Bryan. But all it was was effectively a touched-up set photo that was originally taken by the set photographer Dina Newcomb because to my eye it's never looked like a painting and anyone can say that's a painting I'm like well no it's not it actually looks like a photo and you're not going to trick my eye that 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 was created in 1987 is you know we didn't have photoshop back then but when that bit came up I was just like yeah oh, thank you thank you now this may have been clarified on Robocop archive or something years ago I don't know but it was actually years ago actually on a Robocop archive chat group where people were saying, yeah, yeah, this is the original painting by Mike Bryan. I'm like, it's not a painting, it's a photograph. And they're like, no, no, it's a painting. And Mike Bryan said, yeah, I painted it. No, he didn't. It's just a touched up photograph. And that's not going to mean anything to anyone but other than the most hardcore of Robocop fans. But that to me was just like, yeah, thank you guys for finally clarifying that. I'm going to throw a spanner in the works here, Sky. So technically... Oh, don't tell me now. Don't tell me right, it's not Technically, it's a painting because what he's done is basically trace a photograph with paint. So it is, it's a tracing basically with paint and it was a black and white picture that he's put in colour. So yeah, if somebody was, because this is the thing, it, on the bonus features, there's a, a bonus feature from Peter Weller on the blue, on the what's going to be on the Blu-ray, where he talks about that original acrylic painting and uh, Weller bidded yeah. for that. Um, so there's a little bit, so yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, I, I just wanted to clarify that, that technically someone said. Yeah, because it, obviously the original was black and white, wasn't it? And then the, the poster had colour yes. added to it. Obviously, the reflections off the lights on yeah. his suit. It's an interpretation because that was they only saw the black and white copy. That it was never in color. Yeah. But it's in, it is still. A, a, I mean, that poster is phenomenal. It's my favorite of all time poster. Yeah. It's just everything about it that that it it just screams like 
that era and sci-fi and just like grit. And- God, yeah. It's up there with that Jaws poster, with the alien poster, yeah. with just the egg. Yeah. You know, it just... And, and coupled with that title, it tells you everything you need to know about that film. I think the the other thing as well, you saying about that, like, you know, nice to hear that as well. But um, what I quite enjoyed was, you know, I think the doc works on a understanding the film better level, narratively, and, and the deep, you know, levels that it has. It works on a, you know, I think I'm hoping people will, if they're even just a casual fan, will look at it and go, holy shit, man, this is how films used to get made. But then we've definitely got moments I, I relished in, you know, that, oh, one more nerdy question that you'd probably get from a Q&A. And it's like demystifying things. And I think two things that spring to mind that we, we plucked out was, one, the fact that his chin guard is not on when he takes his helmet off which was great to get that, you know, we've actually got concrete evidence, you know, testimony that sort of tells you what, what the decision was in that uh, situation. And the other one I really enjoyed, um, I think you might pluck this out. You said, I don't know, but it's the whole part of does, does he feel pain when Clarence impales him at the end? And what was great and actually kind of almost quite annoying is that I would see comments floating around on Facebook where people were doing these big debates of do you think he felt that when it went in his chest and this and that and to actually have Weller of all things sort of you know spoiler but you know explain what's going on in that sequence which I won't say was just like yes we got it you know because there's always those little things you look at and if you've watched it enough times as most of us here have you know you, you eventually go right I know everything else now but what about those one or two things so to be able to kind of get little tidbits like that I think sort of really should hopefully sa- uh, satisfy the ardent robo nerds I've got what I've got one more for you as well guys this is going to like the nerdiest of nerd nerdiness which is what I guess this podcast is about anyway which is fine so we had some people I don't know if it's on, on set or just people afterwards I know Robocop archive guys had asked us about this so in our in, in our intro titles, the where you see actually Robocop being built, somebody had, had contacted our artist yeah. and said, "Oh well, Robocop doesn't have a brain, so why in the titles have, has he got a brain?" And I'd Chris and I, I mean, we had this chat. I think we were on shoot, but basically Peter Curran and his team did some opticals for Robocop Two, which we will go into when you'll see in the Robocop Two documentary. So it's a bit of an advertisement where. They, I think you might even be able to see it in Robo 2, maybe not. But there's a, there's some opticals that show Robocop being dissected, and you see that he's got a brain in there. Which, again, you're thinking, does a cyborg? Of course he's got a brain. But there are some Robocop fans out there who believe that he's entirely mechanical and it's just it's just the face oh, and the voice. No, if they haven't seen episode four of the Canadian series, Officer <laughs> actually has some brain surgery done. Just, just throwing out there. Same with the yeah. comics. But yeah, if you're talking about like the film canon, Robocop 2 confirms it. So if anybody's asking that, I know it's like, this is like the geekiest of geek, geek, geek territory, but I was panicking for a second going because our artist had said, oh shit, I'm going to have to undo it. And I was like, no, 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 he's got a brain. Let me just confirm it for you. And it was Peter Curran that, that had sent us uh, or uh, confirm some of the opticals that he worked on for Robocop 2. But I was like, is the cyber? Where do you think the memories are coming from? But anyway. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I, I've always had my own headcanon version of how much of Alex Murphy is left in that suit. And it goes against that of what lots of people on, you know, um, Facebook or chat groups and whatever have said. But I've got my own, because I don't think it's skin grafted onto a robotic thing. I actually think there's a big portion of his head in it, musculature, stuff like that. Because if it wasn't, is mouth wouldn't move like a human mouth but it does and that's my take on it and that's that's the great thing about it you don't need to answer that question you it's just like is Deckard a replicant you can believe he is or you can believe he isn't and 
it's not gonna match i'll tell you one thing we never found out on the documentary so this is a, a spoiler and this is something chris asked i remember you asked on the shoot chris and no one knew so at the very end of robocop when he's t- just taken out clarence and he's, he's been spiked in the neck there's an extra or somebody in the background just one random guy in like a cream shirt i don't know he's got like a hat on something we asked and nobody knew who that was and they were i don't know if there's a ghost on set we have the three men and a, three men and a baby <laughs> thing in robocop um, but yeah. basically, we, we didn't find that out. That's the, that was the one thing that I'm, I still see every time I watch the film, I see that guy in the background. So yeah, if you, if you don't know that is a new, new Robocop fan out there, skim to that end scene when Robocop and Clarence are, are on the water and you'll spot some random bloke in the background, either next to or behind the car, like a rusty old car. I mean, we even found out we even found out who the baby was on the baby jar, which is like an actual, he's like a VFX artist now that works wow. for, I think he worked on like Cloverfield, yeah. but he was a baby during the time of production. Gregor Punchats found that out, because I was like, I wonder who the baby is, and we, we ended up, obviously we ended up asking somebody, who was the baby? And they were like, what a random question. But um, yeah, he's an actual like professional VFX artist, the little the little boy that's on the, ba- on the baby jars. So before we go on to talk about the rest of RoboDoc, the stuff that's yet to come, one little bit I loved is, is Weller, yet again, who seems to get all the best lines in the dock. Near the end, he says, just as, you know, Chris, you and I have said, you know, already tonight, is there's nothing like Robocop. And, and he's right. It's, it's just unlike any other film I've ever seen. And I think that's part of the reason why it's in Dune and why it's aged so well. And why you guys have been able just to get so many people that's involved in this film just to talk so passionately about it. Because... You, you can be objective and you can just say, well, no, it is just objectively a great film. It's one for the ages. 100%, 100% it is. You know, it, I think in a way, it's been quite cathartic, you know, and <laughs> all it took was seven years of stress <laughs> and yeah. efforts on everyone's part to make something that goes, right, you don't believe what I'm saying about it being the greatest film ever? <laughs> Watch this. If you've got four hours spare, four and a half, should I say. Let's discuss then briefly the forthcoming chapters of Robodoc, which cover the second and the third films in the various television series. Ryan was in financial trouble. They immediately wanted to do another one. The film took a radical turn. It was not the original script. It was dark, and there was a meanness about it. It was really scary to me. This brother is not dying in the first 15 minutes. Some of our humanity is being squeezed out of us by technology. There was a lot more blood, sweat, and tears back in the day. This digital technology was taking over more and more. We had to get into digital effects, too. There is a family dynamic that's kind of unique. It's not pretty in real life, but playing a character, it's fun. Whoa! This is, you know, the coolest thing I've ever seen. I mean, I was a kid. What the hell is that? I mostly made fun of him being in the suit. You know, I would... What's bugging you, Murph? Kane's bugging me. Kane was the Swiss Army knife robot. So, let's start, obviously, with the second film. Now, I've not seen the second chapter of Robodoc yet, as it's not yet available, but what can we look forward to with Robodoc's coverage of Irving Kirshner's film Robocop 2 from 1990? So it's, we're going to be drifting very much into sort of more traditional doc territory, because, I, you know, the, the intention... It's an awkward thing to sort of be like, right, the original intention was to do a two-hour doc on Robocop, and we'll do a little bit about the sequels. So, of course... 
everything's just exponentially grown. And similar to the first film, you know, we got the bug of, right, let's get more and more and more and more and more to the point now that I think I can safely say that uh, on record that we've got a two-hour assembly cut of Robodoc 2. <laughs> and, oh, and obviously, beautiful. you know, I'm more than aware. I, I love the Robocop's just timeless. The sequels were there when I was a kid and I still hold them you know, I, I've still got those memories. I love them, and I appreciate they are certainly not the first film. But having said that, I think there's absolutely no matter the quality of the film, there's always going to be interesting stories to tell. Um, and I think what we've managed to kind of unpack is the attempts that were made at the second film. Some things common knowledge, other things not common knowledge. And actually, we've acquired such a wealth from Paul Salmon about four hours of behind-the-scenes footage that only parts have been seen on uh, the Scream Factory release. And just kind of like go, it, it's more traditional in that it talks about, right, here's the little in-between moment between Robocop 1 being a huge success and Orion going, right, go, 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 go. The original ideas uh, for Corporate Wars. And then kind of going into kind of really the behind the scenes about what kind of started to go a bit wrong with that second film. You know what reasons were there and everything like that but at the same time also celebrate actually it's got some pretty uh, incredible things in it it's certainly like the effects it's probably the peak of uh stop motion effects certainly with robo king and then they and also what's a little interesting probably not a spoiler but tidbit is actually you know we've we've got uh interviews or things that kind of allude to the fact that robo king represents the pinnacle of stop motion go motion of its time and yet right in the center on its face is this little looming threat of a cgi face and you know uh oh where yeah. are we going here now well look yeah well, christ look what happened you know phil tippett three years later he's he's working on jurassic park and it's it's at that tipping point where practical effects are going to be pushed aside for a long time in fact you know they're never really going to come back to how they were because of the advent of CG in the form that it came in in Jurassic Park. And Phil Tippett was there at Ground Zero when it was finally like, we were going to do this film practically. We, we were even going to you know get Phil Tippett to do go motion dinosaurs and whatever, but that's not going to work. CG is the way forward. And yeah, that was it. It was kind of like um, the end of an era in many ways. And he was, you know, I always say that the special effects peaked with Starship Troopers because it was a perfect balance of everything. CG when it needed to be used, practical when it needed to be used, and some of the best model work I've ever seen. And, you know, that was that was Rob Boutine, that was Phil Tippett, that was all of these people that we kind of have got all this reverence for, and it, and Paul Verhoeven brought them together. And I always think, yeah, for 1997, that film just still looks absolutely ancient. I, I feel like a stop, but I genuinely believe, like, kind of CGI in its early stages was groundbreaking and utilised so well. I think, you know, yeah. T Terminator 2 is one of those films I look at. Robocop's my absolute favourite film, let that be said. I kind of look at T2 sometimes. It's like, God, this really is a perfect film. So concise. And they utilize, you know, how they utilise CGI in that. Jurassic Park. And as you said, you know, things like Starship Troopers. You know, less is more. <laughs> yeah, and it's always, when yeah. And just use it, just use the right tools yeah, for the job. And use it where where it's needed, yeah. you know. Otherwise, you know, when you get things 
subsequently that just kind of rely heavily on CGI. It just it, it loses it loses me, you know. So as you said, it's not fully coming back, but I think there's definitely awareness now in the industry. I mean, certainly the horror genre is always champion practical effects. I mean, like a, you know, yeah. terrify or whatever. You know, I know that one of its mandates is now every single thing you see on this screen is practical. You can touch it, you can feel it. Yeah, no, we we, we sort of tackle that in a way. Uh, I mean, it's been done already. Obviously, you know Phil Tippett's story um, with uh, Alex Ponset's Alexandra Ponset's documentary on him. But I think just factoring that into the sequels, they were never they were never supposed to be as big as they were. But we've definitely got some gold dust. I mean, to be honest, that some of the interviews we got for three, Robert Burke was incredible. Um, Fred Decker, and I know he's done this outside of it, but is incredibly candid. Um, to get Bruce Locke as well, you know, and I think it's just nice to hear what the people had to say. And I think for the third one in particular, there's such a honesty about all their interviews, which I think is great. I'm not necessarily saying it's going to change perceptions, but it's certainly just going to do a nice little deep dive into. Okay, here's the third film. You all know it. You all know its reputation. Here's what we were trying to do. You know, we were not out to do anything wrong. But, you know, I think that that's what we've got. It's a, a, a deeper dive than anything on Robocop 2 and 3. And just to add to that as well, with Robocop 2, we're literally, we've, we've like brought the band back together. We've got all the bad guys, literally the full gang, which have never, or most of them have never done like interviews. So they're in there and they're they're amazing. The stuff that I've, that I've um, seen of that is, is brilliant. So, yeah, and then wrapped in that as well, Chris mentioned it, but like it's obviously the sort of um, downfall of Orion as well that, that happened during that. So we're going to cover that in two and three. And then we've got, you know, stuff on the sequels, <laughs> on sorry, stuff on the uh, TV show, the TV series, Canadian one. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the first Marvel Comics line and the original video game. So we're going to wrap it all up, but it's essentially the, Ori the Orion Pictures years. So for those people going, why are we not touching Prime Directives? Why are we not touching the Robocop remake? Um, because there's not 50 of us uh, working on it for one, but then also there's something special about that sort of, you know, that 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 time. There's, there's a story there that, you know, a beginning, middle and an end. And if we start covering remakes and sequels that are pending, then the doc will soon be outdated and we don't want to we don't want to get into that territory, really. Yeah, I'm a strong believer that if you're ever going to talk about something, you don't have to be a completionist. Like one of our most popular episodes is the episode we did way back. It was probably around about the time we had Gary on when we did an episode on V and V, the final battle. And a lot of people said afterwards, oh, um, didn't you think maybe about talking about the, the series that followed, the however many episodes that was, which was just an absolute debacle. And it, it was terrible. Kenneth Johnson had left and, and it was just nothing like those two mini series that came in 83 and 84. And we were like, no, we've got nothing positive to say about them. So what's the point in sullying the discussion by talking about how, how bad it became? Let's just let's just stick to the good stuff. And, yeah, you know, for, for things. If you've yeah. got nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. Yeah. Right. That leads me on to my next question. This idea that this was coming from a comic book writer to try to bring some of that comic pulp feel to it. Orion had licensed the character to comic books, toys, the animated series. Robo it had a kind of eye candy to kids. By the time you have the third film, the studio said to me, we're looking for a kinder, gentler RoboCop. Don't! It was the most amazing thing to open up Ed 209 and control him with a laptop. Eat lead suckers. I'm playing this ninja, but I have no martial arts background. 
called for backup. Wait a minute, that's my voice. Holy fuck. Where's McDaggett? You fantasize that you could be a genocidal maniac. Don't count on it, chum. <gasps> They're gonna kill her. I just knew they were gonna do that. I was so upset. Get them from me. If I'd done all the crazy stuff that I was afraid to do, like kill Nancy and have her come back as a cyborg, the movie probably would have done pretty well. I think my dentist saw it before I did. We're cutting edge here, baby robots fly. As Gary told me way back on that previous episode that he was on, you guys, aside from recording uh, your great commentary for Arrow Video's amazing special edition of Robocop, which came out a few years back, you also recorded commentaries for Robocop 2 and Robocop 3 for Shout Factory in the US. Now, Gary said that MGM stipulated that they didn't want you to say anything negative about the films. But how do you talk for the length of Robocop 3 without saying anything critical about it. We, I mean, we, we, I remember that. that I remember that because we did Robocop 2 and Robocop 3 commentary in like one afternoon and um, obviously had a bit of a break in between it. But because there's Robert Burke's performance in that, it's different to Peter Weller. But no, knowing what we know, and once people watch the Robocop 3 documentary and he was so candid and honest and the st- what he was advertised to get him in that suit and, and get him to play that part was completely different to what ended up in the film. So we we were watching it with fresh eyes, no, with the knowledge of what Robert Burke told us and what Fred Decker told us, because Fred Decker was another one. And he, he I mean, uh, spoiler alert, but he put his hand up and said, look, I'm, I'm the one steering the ship. It's my fault it ended up that way, but I had different intentions and I had bigger ideas that just didn't make it into the film. So we were watching it with those eyes and we were complimentary because Again, Robert Birkin, that's great. I think the soundtrack's amazing. Basil's score is amazing. Chris and I, when we watched it, we were at that age where it, it impacted us anyway because we were kids watching it and it, it fit. It was the first one we were allowed to watch. So we watch it with, with those nostalgic eyes. And I think there is some there are some things in there, jetpack aside and all this horrible blue screen work, but there are some things in there that are great. And then, yeah, we just, we just couldn't slag it off. It felt harsh as well to be like if you're watching that film and watching a commentary, you don't want someone sat there like like why would you ever want to listen to somebody slating it? Like you, no. you're obviously a fan to be to be at that point anyway, clicking play with a commentary. So I know I'd turn it off if I heard just a, a load of three random Brits slagging stuff off. So we're obviously professional, but yeah, we we had we had a different a different take on it because of the stuff that we learned. I, th- I think yeah, and like mm-hmm. I'll I'll hold my hand up and say you know. Robocop 3, admittedly, for me, that was the one I was allowed to see as a kid. You know what I mean? You you can watch that one completely uncut, but don't you dare ever try and get your hands on the full uncut version of Robocop. You know, you've been given that highly, heavily censored ITV version. And same for Robocop 2. I remember my granddad uh, thinking he'd failed in how badly he had uh, chopped up Robocop 2 and some of his judgments. And yeah, I think we're not out to over criticize things we want to be honest though that's the main that's that's the key thing but we're not out to kind of do a you know exposition on oh yeah god look at this pile of shit it's more no let's let's find out what happened you know and i think it's going in and being honest but with a diplomatic view at the same time you know and we we had it with uh pennywise i think i remember when i was saying earlier about the fact that you know we've had people say oh i don't know if we should talk about how bad the spider is in it you know we shouldn't do that i'm like no we absolutely should and let's hear what happened and so that was kind of quite nice and i think in a way that kind of gave people a little bit of uh, better understanding or appreciation at least of why the spider at the end of it uh, episode two you know turned out the way it did you know there might be a reason that some things didn't work out and we were just very lucky that we had sort of very honest but 
diplomatic views given to us by every cast member. And surprisingly as well, Robocop 3's got so many soon-to-be stars of US TV in it as well. So Stephen Root, uh, Jill Hennessy, you know, is actually quite astonishing when you look at the roster of people in that third film. You're like, Jesus Christ, they all went on to have pretty nifty careers. We think about the first Robocop as well, because that to us is like a perfect film. But there's the moment where Dick Jones is falling out of the window. The amount of times I've showed that to people and that moment comes up and I'm there wincing, going, I'm ready for them to comment on this bit. Because that's the one thing that always takes people. But we talk about it in the documentary. We've got Greg O talking about it. Like we, we asked we asked Rocco Joffrey again, like Chris says, like we're not going to sugarcoat it. We, we all know that that bit could have been better. And those professionals talk, you know, they literally talk about, oh, actually, it was a lens thing, and they, they, they're they well aware of it. So, yeah, you, you can't shy away from that stuff, but it doesn't mean you can't enjoy the film, and it's a talking point, isn't it? 100%. And, you know, when, when I, I always judge things in terms of peaks and troughs, and if that's the only trough the Robocop's got that lasts literally seconds, then... Look how big those peaks are elsewhere in that film. I think it's just unfortunate that Die Hard followed the, literally the year afterwards. And, and oh, did it perfectly. God, no, yeah. that is how you do yeah. it. You know, It's not like there was limitations of its time. You're like, no, fuck me. Within a couple of months, they had Alan Rickman falling onto a blue screen. And it's like, mm. yeah, that, that kind of did the trick, didn't it? So, But hey, you know, I, I say it works in service of the film. But maybe I look at it more of the zaniness of the film. You know, God knows what we've just been through for the previous, you know, hundred odd minutes. So why not? Fuck it. Let's have an elongated Dick Jones fall yeah. out the window. It doesn't actually take me out of the film, but like Eastwood said, I think there is that thing when you're watching it with someone, you're like, oh no, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. And you just yeah. wait to hear what, what the reaction. I watch quite a lot of those reaction videos on YouTube. You know, people watching a film for the first time, and I—I I think I've watched all of them for RoboCop purely, just going, let's see how they react to Murphy's death. Let's see how they react to Kinney's death. See how they react to Toxic Man. Oh, go on. Let's see how they react to Dick Jones. And nine times out of ten, they're like, oh my god, what is that? But um, as I said, you know, so many peaks and just that one little thing is just like, so what? <laughs> so I, I apologise in advance for this question, guys. But this comes from other members of the Film 89 team, as I've alluded to before we hit the record button tonight. But how long will we have to wait for the second and third chapters? And are you able to discuss any details regarding distribution of RoboDoc in the UK and the rest of the world? Gary, actually, I'll let you I'll let you answer this one. You, you, you know how it works. I can't think what the term's called. First refusal. Gary, yeah. you take this one, actually. Go for it. Yeah, so we've already got a first option deal for Rorocop Season 2 and 3 with Screenbox. They have first refusal on it, basically. It's part of the initial contract. Now, we're hoping they're going to say yes, because uh, obviously I think it would fit nicely with them to continue, obviously, the relationship with us. But, you know, if they say no, obviously we can ship it elsewhere. Uh, in terms of the UK, I'm getting, I always get dates, and I, I'm trying to find something in front of me now. So I think it has been announced a date, haven't they, today? I December think 18th, I for a physical release. I, I saw somebody moaning about it on some Robocop page. Uh, why did the Yanks get it before the British? It's actually a disgrace. Not our fault. <laughs> it's always that way and I'm sure there was a day I'm, well let's use Robocop as an example July 1987 didn't come out in the UK till February February 88 I, think, yeah. I always thought as a kid that I was in my mummy's tummy when uh, she went to see it with my dad and that's bullshit because I was born the month before yeah so, so Kaleidoscope <laughs> have purchased it for the UK um, it's going to come out on a um, special edition Blu-ray which Eastwood's been working on the artwork with them, designing that, and they have gone green, I think, haven't they? They've they've yeah. gone with basically Gary yeah. and I have some thoughts on the on the on the cover, and they've they've done what we've asked, which is amazing. It does look great. I I have the dates, Gary, if I'm allowed to tell. Yeah, people. yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. Right, yeah. okay. So 
I forget. Am I allowed to tell them the UK dates? Yeah, yeah. It's been advertised today anyway, it has. Um, okay. Yeah. So, all right, I have the dates just because I've been staring at it for ages going, when can we tell people? Um, so, okay, so obviously it's out in the States episodically at the minute and then in America it gets a Blu-ray in October, so October 18th, and there's a Walmart Steelbook version of that as well and that is Region A locked, so that's for the American audience. And then for the UK, uh, that will be coming to, am I allowed to say the channel? I don't know what I'm allowed to say. Um, I don't know what I'm allowed to say. You have to cut this bit out, Sky. Um, But yeah, the film icon channel, is it called, on Amazon Prime? So mid-October, that's dropping, and it'll be episodic. So it'll be running through November, uh, October to uh, mid-November. And then it comes to Blu-ray in the UK, um, the 18th of December. They've got really nice art cards, haven't they, as well? They've got some some exclusive content for the UK ones in terms of, like, extra... uh, In terms of, like, um, yeah, art cards and things. And then in terms of the Blu-ray features, there's 60 minutes of bonus features that will be on all of the Blu-rays. So that's... We've got nine special features in there that cover the video games, that cover... We've got a Rob Bottin tribute. We've got a little Meet the Makers, which Chris and I recorded about the making of Robodoc that shows sort of the behind-the-scenes... Don't watch that. Don't watch that one. Um, Skip that. We've got, yeah, a feature on the Robo team, feature on the weapons with Randy Moore that goes into detail about all the different weapons because it was Ed Neumeyer who had the brilliant job of tasking uh, the production with all the weapons. So he picked all the weapons for all the different characters and there's just like a plethora of of weapons in Robocop. Um, So we talk about that. Um, yeah, there's enough. There's, it's like 20 minutes shy of six hours of Robocop one content if you buy the Blu-ray. So yeah, buy the Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what's been great, I think particularly with with Screenbox, is that we're all like physical media fans, and I'm sure he will tell you a little story about John Davison in a second. But like we we all love physical media, so I think to have it on physical media, especially when a couple of years ago it was disappearing, so to have a steelbook exclusive in the US, and then to have obviously a, a really nice collector's edition as well in the US, and then to get it over here as well on, on a on a collector's edition, I'm, it's great having it digitally, it's great having it on on you know a streaming network, but to physically have your product in your hand. And I think where that work's gone into it, I think you know, and it's official, and it can go to H and V, it's on the shelf in there. That's going to be the. I know that Pennywise is on the shelf, but I think it was so different the experience. I'm, I've been into a pen, into a HMV recently, and it was there. I didn't want to photograph. I want to photograph with Hollywood Dreams and with Robocop because I think particularly Robocop's been such a fucking chain and around everybody's neck, and particularly obviously Eastwood and Chris. I think it's going to be nice to see physically there on a shelf. Hopefully, it will sell out. I know. It's, I know it's become a, a like. One of the top sellers on Amazon for the US. It was like ridiculous. It, was, it sold out the first couple of days, and they re obviously issued it. So it's definitely doing well for Screenbox. So I'm hoping as well for Kaleidoscope as well here. And then next, obviously, we'll look at Europe then as well. Yeah. And listen, we understand the frustration of like the UK fans in particular, and we're so lucky to have those guys as supporters. And if we were on that side of it, outside the bubble that we're in, and we would be like, where the fucking hell is this thing? And we would, you know, it's been a while and, and we understand people getting frustrated. There's just a process with obviously sales and the stuff that Gary deals with. We had to go after the American market first. It's an American IP. It's, they're the biggest bloody whale in the sea. So you have to go after the Americans, Americans first. It's just part and parcel. You know, all the all the backers that backed us are going to get copies of the Blu-ray. They're getting six hours instead of what could have potentially been two hours if we had gone with that initial Kickstarter. Um, and they're going to get the names in the credits of four episodes um and they're going to get seasons two and three as well so like we're, we're trying to look after people i say we gary's trying to look after people 
Um, but we do understand their frustration. We don't want to like underplay it. I think people think we're taking the piss and having a bit of a jolly this end and just going, oh, we're going to sell it. To-. Like we're, we're, we're thinking of the audience, which is why we've gone with Screenbox, which is why we want the, the physical side of it. We want the, we want to be able to hold the because we're obsessed with ourselves. We want to have the physical copy. Other streamers just would have never offered that. So like all that stuff's been considered. Gary, Gary and, and the sales guys have, have thought about that. But we, you know, just wait a few moments, guys, and you'll you'll get a copy and, and let us know what you think. <laughs> it's important to say as well. I think again, you know, it's only from a business point of view. Is that we mentioned obviously about the thirty three grand or thirty four grand which was raised on Kickstarter initially. I mean, it's cost two hundred and fifty grand to make. Now that's been obviously adding up over the years. We've put money in ourselves from the company, but to get it over the last line, we had to rely on Screenbox. You know, regards to again, we haven't just taken money on Screenbox and put it in our pockets and all gone on holiday. That money's gone into the post production. To get it done properly, and obviously the legals that have done, and all the kind of QC and the sound, and obviously the you know the other additional support that East was needed. So you know that is the reason why you went to Screenbox first in the US because they jumped on board with us. They loved the concept. They never once questioned Eastwood's plan for a four episode. Never once it's restricted him to sixty minutes per episode either. So you know without them, I we wouldn't we would not be sitting here today talking about the release because we would have had to find the thousands upon thousands of pounds for the post-production we had would have had to do legally from somewhere else so yet we've had to you know we've had to you know suck it in in that sense to get it out there they're very fast as well Screenbox are they literally were streaming and it's out in a month on, on blu-ray you know it was a little bit weird with pennywise because they streamed it first over there and then it was released in the uk on blu-ray first uh, again i think it's just a timing thing that was but I know that the last thing I'll say about it, obviously they're very much pro-physical. I know Brandon Hill, who's our liaison there, he's always po- constantly posting Instagram pictures of all the releases they have on physical, including Pennywise, and that's going to include Hollywood Dreams, and obviously Robodot next. We could have a whole uh, podcast just on the, you know, the trials and tribulations of Kickstarters and the mistakes we've made over the years. But as Eastwood said, and Chris obviously has alluded to, is that I genuinely think after it's all done, and he's what the kids are saying to me over the years, he's always saying this, but it's true. When it's all over and it's out, and including, you know, a couple of years' time when two and three are out, people are going to get way more than they paid for. Uh, and, you know, and most times you do a release, you pay for your name in the credit as a thank you. That's one one release. This is four consecutive weeks, you know, and it sounds silly, but that's four four times you're going to get before. And, it, and how successful these projects are now in, term, in comparison to Brewster and Leviathan in regards to the, you know, the reach they're getting, that's way more than we would ever have got independently. You know, you're talking about thousand copies of Brewster sold and that was it until it was a few years after. So this is like, you know, these people have contributed seven years ago. They're part of a legacy now. They're part of the, they're stamped into RoboDot like we are. You know, it's kind of weird that there's fans, and particularly these two as hardcore fans, they've become part of that legacy of that franchise that they love. And so do the people contribute. And without those, it wouldn't have happened. But, you know, uh, we can only apologise, but people are getting a good deal, I think, genuinely. Well, if I can just bring things to a close then, guys, and like sort of sum things up from the point of view of the audience, the, 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 the type of person you guys were aiming this thing towards in the first place because it's, it's fitting that at the end of this first chapter of Robodoc, the Paul Verhoeven says that Robocop is the best of all the films he's made in his opinion and he's made some truly great films but now that film my personal favorite film like it is yours chris has now got a document of his production and his legacy that is just worthy and fitting of such a timeless masterpiece because as i, as I said in my review of robodoc on the film 89 site i'm just 
completely blown away by how good the final product is. Literally for a fan like me, it's the stuff of dreams. I have to pinch myself after I, fi after I finish watching it. So I just want to thank you all for the incredible amount of hard work you've done to create what for me is now the definitive and most in-depth making of documentary that I've ever seen. Because I'll be honest guys, I wouldn't say that if it wasn't genuine and I would just be a little bit more kind of uh, quiet in my praise if there were things about it that I felt were missing or lacking or thought ah, they could have come at that from a different perspective or you know it just ticked all the boxes and it, it more importantly for me it taught me things about my favorite film which I genuinely never knew anecdotes I'd never heard it goes back to when Gary mentioned in the previous episode Chris that book that you had that I've also got that's now gathering dust and mold in my garage that came out I think 2014 and it was a coffee table book on Robocop and I'm not gonna say too mm. much more about it because you know I don't want to shit on <laughs> other people's work but I think it was like 86 pages about the first film and I read it and I got to the end and I thought uh, I've, I've learned nothing whereas other books I've read from people like Ian Nathan you know who's, who's a good friend of the podcast his, his document of Peter Jackson's making of the Lord of the Rings films is just a mind-blowing book. And again, that taught me things that, you know, I, I had no idea. And he went into so much depth with his research, just like you guys have. And to have this thing now just available, I, I'm just blown away. It, I, I had very, very ridiculously lofty expectations and unreasonable ones. And you guys were always on a, a road to failure in terms of me as a fan and you just succeeded in every conceivable way so genuinely guys thank you it is as good as i could have ever wanted i think as you said before i think we all said from day one we do these projects because we it's a project we want to see ourselves you know we are we, we're never doing it for monetary reasons and that sounds really cliche it's about celebrating the, the work that we love so i think you know we do it for people like yourself or fans you know and you know we had a review last week from a, a lady who criticises for not having super fans in it, and that's what it was lacking. So she can go fuck herself because it, you know we we are basically <laughs> giving that this documentary is for the yeah. fans, and it's actually about people that made it, and celebrating the people who actually on that production who put their blood, sweat, and tears into it, and then thirty odd years later came back to a studio in Burbank, boiling hot summer of two thousand and sixteen, to sit with like four four Brits and an an American a couple of Americans, to talk about the legacy of that. That's what it's about. It's a gift to them. It's a gift to the fans. And I think, you know, hopefully, you know, the, the actors and, and the crew will watch it now. And the feedback we've had of them is amazing. We'll appreciate, obviously, that, you know, we've celebrated that work. And, you know, that's what's important to us. If it was about the money, we would have released it five years ago and, you know, and done a real shit job at it, but made a couple of quid. But we decided to wait seven years to get the best. And I do think, the last thing I'm genuinely going to say, I think, I think you know, as much as it's taken seven years, it's been worth it in terms of we wouldn't have got as good a project if we hadn't waited seven years. Because people mature and, and, and relationships change and skills change. And I think all of us have changed as people. I mean, Chris has got really old looking. Um, but, you know, we, I think we all mature, obviously, in our relationships with each other. And I think we've had conversations where we've been able to be a bit more straight with each other than we would have been maybe five years ago to get the best product out there. So it, it Things happen for a reason, don't they? And it's taken seven years for a reason. And it will take Chris another 15 yeah. years to do episode two and three for a reason. Can I just say, Sky, like that's a massive relief to somebody. I know how much of a big Robocop fan you are. And like for Chris, I, well, for all of us, 
we've got pals that are big Robocop fans that are well known in the Robocop community and they'd always say to us like but what have you what can you get that that's not been already said in these EPKs and other documentaries and we were just like we we just have to say just wait like we <laughs> promise we yeah. we'd, we'd love to send you stuff but just 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 wait and like the fact that it's now coming out and people are going it's worth the wait and I'm a massive you know I'm a massive fan and I learned something like that is that those are the best comments because again if I was used I'd be the other one going I know everything like what and then there's stuff in there that I'm like fucking hell we didn't even know that I remember when when we were on shoot and the the um, it was John Davis, who was one of the police officers, told us, oh, yeah, we were named after the serial killers. And me and Chris were like, did you? We didn't even know that. We had no idea. We, we'd seen the film many times, but we had no idea that the cops were named. And that was one thing we were like, back pocket. We're going to get that in the documentary. We'll make a moment out of it. There were so many things that kept coming up like that on the production. And now that we're hearing it from, like, super fans as yourself, they were coming out and saying it was worth the bloody way. And um, I've learned something. And it made me want to put the film on again. Like that's all we wanted. That is like they're, they're they're like the biggest wins for us. So really appreciate it. That review was so articulate, and I mean, I literally sent that to my dad as well. That review, I was like, look at this. The guy's uh, being super nice. But um, just thank thanks so much for for that as well, and and being so articulate. Like that review, I I don't need to tell you guys that you know how good the documentary is. You guys have worked your guts out on this, and you've seen it, and you know you know how good it is, right? That was for the people who are not as lucky as myself, who are going to have to wait a little bit longer to see it, just to tell them, look, you're going to get it eventually, and it's there now, I've seen it, it exists, it's no longer a, a unicorn or whatever, so it's, it's just to kind of appease them, because I've got lots of friends who have said, when can I see it, when can I see it, I'm like, look, you'll get to see it, but trust me, it'll be worth that extra little wait. Yeah, and, that- and other friends of mine who kind of backed the Kickstarter have said, yeah, when, when am I going to get the Blu-ray? I said, look, You'll get it when you get it, and when you do, it'll literally just. Yeah. And I, I, if I was them, I'd be doing the exact friggin' same because it's been a long time. But that hopefully that time will dissolve when they've sat and they sit in the seats and they press play, and hopefully all that time and effort's on the screen and they and, and they go right again. Like Gary said, we could have put this out in 2017. I think this is the thing. Like, if we wouldn't have put that trailer out in 2017 and probably delayed it a bit because we did, we shot ourselves in the foot doing that. We put together like a, a trailer that obviously you've talked about in this guy, but like. It was a pretty well-rounded trailer, but in reality, we made a trailer from scratch that that wasn't pulling from a documentary. We literally went, we've got to have something out for the 30th because that'll be really cool and we get all the cast and crew to share it. And as soon as that was out, we had it blew up on Twitter and everyone's like, where is this frigging thing? And we were like, shit, we've not actually done all this. I, ret- I literally did all the green screen just for the trailer and not touch the green screen in the documentary because obviously you do that at the end. So that, that's where, and that, that's the mistake on our on our, on our our side, I think. But I mean, we needed something for the 30th because you can't miss that opportunity. And it was fun to put together. But that's when, it, as soon as we, we we dropped that online, that's when the clock started ticking where everyone was like, right, it's got to be coming out soon because a trailer means it's nearly done, right? But yeah, we're at this side of it now. We just ask the UK fans and, and, and even people that are just, you know, itching to watch the Blu-ray and don't want to watch it on streaming. Because again, John, even John Davison, the, the Robocop producer, we sent John Davison um, some private links, obviously, because, you know, they were a big part of as to why we're, we're at this point now. And John was like, nope, I'll wait for the Blu-ray because I'm a physical media addict and I'm just like this guy. So he's not even seen it. Um, but the fact that we got that response was amazing. Thanks again for, for your feedback. And I, I know you're not blowing smoke because, you know, we know how much you love the film and you just wouldn't need to say it if you, like you said, you just avoid mentioning the uh, the praise if you didn't if you didn't believe it yeah so thank you guys for coming on i really do appreciate it it's it, it's it's talking about my favorite film which I, i'm just always going to be you know ready to do but you know i know you guys have been really busy and you know just thank you very much for sparing the time 
But where can people find you on social media if they want to discuss Robodoc or any of the other projects you've worked on or projects you have in the pipeline? It's always hard to answer <laughs> that one, isn't it? There's uh, yeah. at Robodoc. No, Robocop Doc, is it? Robocop underscore Doc? Yeah. On um, X or Twitter. Come on, Twitter. Fucking Twitter. We've got yeah. a Facebook page, Robocop Documentary, Instagram, Robocop Documentary. And then in terms of like personal, Chris is going to give out his address. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, our names, I guess, on, on social. Yeah. People, I think people are best off starting on the official. Anything that we post usually goes on the official channels first, and then we'll use our own little personal touch on the socials. Yeah, we've been a lot more active on the um, on the socials now because obviously we, we can be. We you know it's kind of thing we've avoided because obviously you start putting stuff up, you start getting the criticism basically. And, and back then, unfortunately, the abuse. But now we've got something to show. We actually know he's coming out. Eastwood's been like on on form in regards to the socials and, and, and doing like you know our own publicity kind of like uh, statement. So yeah, I think it's regularly updated, isn't it now? And, and things are shared and reviews are shared. I think you might have the exclusive dust guy on the old British dates. I think some stuff is online, but you'll have the um, yeah the, the actual British drops for um, Icon Channel and the Blu-ray. So if, so if anyone oh, comes great. after anybody for breach of contract, it's Eastwood Allen that gave those dates. <laughs> Make sure you keep the bit in where I'm asking Gary, am I all right? Oh <laughs> fuck, it's our project. Like <laughs> on that note. <laughs> So you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, that's Sky with an E, and you can find the rest of the Film 89 team on Twitter and Facebook at Film 89 UK. Please check out the website, film89.co.uk, and I've got to say thank you to all of our amazing listeners and followers. Our last episode, the one on The Great Escape, that got to number one on the Worldwide Podomatic Podcast Charts in the film history category, which just absolutely blew us away. So thank you to everyone who listened to that episode and said such kind things about it. If you haven't already, then please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcast. Next episode, we've got the return of one of our favourite guest hosts. It's poster artist Tony Stella, and we just cannot wait for that one. But for now, all that's left to say is stay safe, be excellent to one another, but more importantly, stay out of trouble. <laughs> That was awesome. Robocop is an icon. People relate to it to this day. Today's world needs a Robocop. This is a guy who's going to show up and do the job. A wonderful, unique hero. That's the lightning in the bottle. Every successive generation discovers it for themselves. So I think there's an ongoing fascination. And that keeps him relevant. Stay out of trouble.